Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists. Thanks for joining us. On this podcast, I have long, casual conversations with folks whose work intersects with climate in some way. I'm an oceanographer myself, and I really like being in the field. I like working with other scientists. This is my little way to celebrate that, uh, a little way to try to appreciate the privileged position that I'm in by giving my colleagues a chance to talk about their work and to talk about their lives and to just generally stay plugged into the field and plugged into what is going. What is going? What is going on? Okay, there we go. This week, it was my great pleasure to speak with Dr. Alison Ming. Dr. Ming works at the British Antarctic Survey. She's a stratospheric scientist. She uh, knows a lot about stratospheric dynamics. She knows a lot about, uh, she's learned a lot in the past uh, year of doing a new postdoc of uh, chemistry in the atmosphere, uh, having come from a more dynamical background that we talk about. So she works in the Atmosphere, Ice, and Climate Group, and as part of this project called the Ice Soul Ice Project that we talk about, uh, it's the acronym there is I S O L dash I C E, and uh, what she's doing uh, is she is using the uh, UKCA Chemistry Climate Model to look at various influences of volcanic eruptions. Uh, for example, and we go into this in in pretty good detail. She looks at how volcanic eruptions through chemistry and circulation ultimately impact the amount of ozone that exists in the Antarctic stratosphere, in the portion of the stratosphere that is resting, well, not resting, but is located above Antarctica. In case you're not familiar, the stratosphere is the layer of Earth's atmosphere that uh, rests just above the troposphere. The troposphere is where we live. That's roughly the lower 10 kilometers of the atmosphere. It contains the vast majority of the mass of the atmosphere. It's way more dense down here than it is up in the stratosphere. So uh, that's you can think of the troposphere, where we live, roughly the first 10 kilometers away from the ground. That's uh, the order of magnitude, anyway. And above the troposphere, there's this layer, the tropopause, where you transition from the troposphere into the stratosphere. And... Uh, a really curious thing starts to happen when you ascend through the troposphere and through the stratosphere. Here's the curious thing. So as you ascend up through the troposphere, on average, the temperature goes down. It gets colder as you ascend, as you increase in altitude. But interestingly, as you ascend through the stratosphere, the air actually gets hotter. That is, the temperature goes up. Now, the reason for that is that in the stratosphere, there's a layer of ozone. There's a layer of, a layer of molecules that absorbs direct ultraviolet radiation from the sun, and it gets hotter, that is, the temperature goes up as a result. Now, there's actually not as much thermal energy up there. There's more thermal energy down here in the troposphere because the air is way denser down here, and uh temperature doesn't tell you the whole story when it comes to how much thermal energy is there. Uh, think about it this way. You know, would you rather stick your hand into a 400 degree oven or a 150 degree uh, or 100 degree pot of boiling water? You know the answer. I mean, that's you'd stick your hand briefly anyway in the 400 degree oven, even though it's hotter by numbers, but there's just not as much. The density is way lower. 
in the oven compared to the pot of water, right? So you'd stick your hand in the less dense air in the oven, even though the temperature is higher than in the more dense um, pot of water. But the stratosphere does some cool things that can have a big impact on the conditions down here at Earth's surface. And uh, one of the big ones that Dr. Ming and I talked about briefly is uh, sudden stratospheric warmings. So I'm going to read you, because this isn't my area, I'm going to read you something from EOS, Earth and Space Science News. This is uh, one of the AGU websites, the American Geophysical Union websites, eos.org if you want the website. And uh, it's about how sudden stratospheric warming affects the whole atmosphere. So I'm just going to read bits and pieces out of this. High above Earth's surface, air temperatures occasionally increase suddenly producing widespread effects on weather, air chemistry, and telecommunications. So this is about weather events 10 to 50 kilometers above the Earth's surface in the atmospheric layer called the stratosphere. And it can affect weather down here at the surface, like I just mentioned. Um, we've known this for a while as a field. You know, experiments demonstrate that if you uh, resolve stratospheric dynamics, you're better able to forecast and predict surface weather far into the future particularly during winter in the northern hemisphere. So that's that's a cool fact, right? That if you include a stratosphere in your weather forecast model, you'll do a better job. So meteorologists looking to improve their short and long-term weather forecasts, they try to figure out a way to put stratospheric disturbances and the stratosphere into their model. Yeah, so during a stratos sudden stratospheric warming, which is a, a relatively common event, uh, maybe happening every couple of years as we discussed uh, in the podcast. So during those sudden stratospheric warmings, stratospheric temperatures can jump up. They can fluctuate by more than 50 degrees Celsius over a matter of days, which is crazy. I mean, that's an insane amount of warming uh, and at an insane temperature change over just a short period. So what's going on here? The research has shown that there's a connection between these sudden stratospheric warmings and extensive changes throughout the Earth's atmosphere. They can affect chemistry, temperatures, winds, uh, electron densities, so they can affect uh, the kind of electron densities in the atmosphere, which can affect telecommunications, um, and the effects are, are, are enormous. Um, so how do these things happen? You know, how do these sudden stratospheric warmings begin? Uh, they were first detected back in the 1950s when observations using uh, balloon-borne instruments, that's literally just attaching instruments to balloons, letting them rise through the atmosphere and looking at the recordings, looking at the measurements. So these balloon-borne instruments called radiosondes showed that the temperatures in the northern hemisphere winter, uh, they go through periods of rapid increase. This is from a, a paper back in 1952. So yeah, they've been we've known about them for a while as a field. I say we. Not me personally, but as a field. So these periods of warming, they span several days and were followed by a decrease toward typical long-term mean values over the next few weeks. Um, so actually, yeah, how, how do they start? Well, they uh, start in the troposphere, despite the fact that they are a stratospheric phenomenon. Uh, Matsuno, 1971, that's an author, scientist, proposed a mechanism for the occurrence of uh, sudden stratospheric warmings that is still considered largely valid today. At altitudes of no less than 10 kilometers above Earth's surface, you get planetary-scale waves that form and propagate upward into the stratosphere where they dissipate. 
This leads to a weakening of the polar vortex, which is the strong circulation that you often find circling around the Arctic, uh, circling kind of very, very broadly around the Arctic in the North Pole, which is, uh, they, they call it a confined region of strong eastward winds that form during wintertime at high latitudes. As the polar vortex weakens, polar stratospheric temperatures increase um, because that strong circulation has something to do with kind of supporting the structure like where the stratosphere is located in the in the column in the in the air column okay yeah this feature is a really nice summary actually on the eos.org website um, and the the lead author you have to scroll all the way down to the bottom to see the lead author weirdly uh, i'm probably pronouncing this incorrectly so i apologize <laughs> but it's a uh, nick uh Petatella, um, P-E-D-A-T-E-L-L-A, and uh, who appears to be from the High Altitude Observatory at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. So yes, back to my guest, Dr. Allison Ming. Dr. Ming and I had a very nice conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I really appreciate her time. If you'd like to follow her, and I recommend that you do, on Twitter, her handle is at Allison Ming, spelled just like you see it on the episode title here. Um, I would also like to say uh, congratulations. Dr. Ming was just awarded a fellowship. I believe she said it was through the, the Lever Hume Trust. I hope that's correct. Uh, if, it's not, if it's not right, I'll, I'll correct it. Um, so congratulations on that. She'll be carrying out uh, some additional work here in Cambridge uh, on that fellowship, which is really exciting. So we talked about uh, the science that she did for her PhD, which was at the University of Cambridge in the Mathematical Sciences um, Department. And we also talked about um, the work that she's doing here at Bass, which has to do with volcanoes and their connections to stratosphere, stratospheric ozone. And then later in the show, we talk about uh, she grew up on a tropical island, uh, Mauritius. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think I am. So it used to be a Dutch... Uh, island possession and then it, the French came and took it over and then it became a British uh, colony uh, and the island gained independence I think in the 60s 1960s and uh, she says it's a really really interesting and diverse place really it sounds like a really interesting place to grow up uh, I really enjoyed learning a bit more about that so uh, yeah without too much more from me uh, oh Alison Ming Dr. Ming is also the coordinator for the Cambridge Center for Climate Science which is uh, something that I've been involved with before the Cambridge Center for Climate Science we uh, host events uh, over all over Cambridge uh, designed to strengthen the kind of network of climate researchers uh, here in Cambridge between the university and the British Antarctic Survey and Scott Polar Institute and uh, any department in town that basically does some kind of uh, work that intersects with climate. We want it to be under that Cambridge Center for Climate Science umbrella. So um, if you do have a general climate question and you, you don't know where to go, um, contact the Cambridge Center for Climate Science. That could be a good starting point because uh, even if we don't know the answers ourselves, we can hopefully direct you to the right person. Um, and if you want, you can contact, you can go through me, uh, Dan Jones Ocean is my Twitter handle, at Dan Jones Ocean, and uh, that, would, that would be a perfectly fine. There's also a Cambridge Center for Climate Science, CCFCS underscore UK. It's a lot of C's, I know, <laughs> and a lot of S's, CCFCS underscore UK, 
uh, is the Twitter handle for the Cambridge Center for Climate Science. Um, great. Well, uh, thanks again to Dr. Allison Meng for her time. And enjoy this chat on the stratosphere, volcanoes, ozone, hierarchical modeling, um, growing up on an island, growing up on a tropical island, doing all sorts of uh, dangerous chemical and physical experiments in her home uh, with various explosive materials that we talk about uh, later in the chat. And uh, yeah, and then her life and work here uh, in Cambridge for the last several years. Okay, here we go. In our line of work, you know, it's easy for us to find things to be stressed out about in terms of, you know, climate and climate change. And does it, is that ever something you, like, struggle with? Like the, um, the kind of enormity of the physical problem and the climate problem? and social problem. How do you feel about that? Or are you able to like, cause I can sometimes maintain a bit of a professional distance from it and just kind of think about the physical system as an interesting physical system. And I think that's a, that's a privilege that physical scientists have is that we can retreat back into the, this world of, well, let's just represent and think about how this really interesting physical climate system works without necessarily stressing out about, oh, yeah, in 100 years, the planet's going to be potentially in a much different state, and it might even not be as uh, habitable in some areas. And you know, Do you know, guess, where, you know where I'm going? Yes. Yeah. So it makes you think. Um, so obviously around Bast, you hear a lot about plastics and um, microplastics, so it does make you think. Um, it means that when you go home, you think, I mean, everyone, I guess, is thinking a bit about single-use plastics, and you try and cut down on that. So if you're in a supermarket, you make choices about what you buy and you make choices about, you know, coffee cups and water bottles when you're out and you just tend not to. You sort of go away from that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there is that. There is um, the IPCC special report on the 1.5C uh, warming that came out recently. Um, and it, it that also makes you think about meat consumption and how much meat you're eating. Yeah. And, are you reducing that and that sort of thing? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, even you don't even have to work at Bass to, to do that. I mean, for example, my my Twitter feed is like so much of it is climate change, <laughs> like so much of it is climate because of the people I follow, and so I've kind of by the by by following certain you know people, that's a kind of bubble I've made for myself. Yeah. Bubble in terms of the the kinds of information that I get, mm-hmm. and it's easy for me to forget that like. You know, this isn't, everybody's not looking at this. There are some folks who, you know, aren't really engaging with climate change as a thing, as an issue, you know, on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. But but we are, right? Or we are, it's in our face in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you think that, you know, is, that's like a possible blind spot for us maybe, right? Is that we, we hear about this stuff and we constantly, and it's just, you know, climate change and environmental stuff. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, folks maybe in the general public might not. So that's, that's just something that we have to balance, but it doesn't sound like you don't seem faced. So you don't, maybe you don't have any trouble with that. Maybe that's not a, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's, it, it's difficult. So those, I guess there's work I do. And also the fact that you feel that you have to tell people about it. Um, and, Generally, when I say I study the atmosphere, then people will ask me about the climate. Yeah, that's right. Um, 
and you get a balance of both. So you get you get people who are really interested and would like to learn something about it, and other people who want to know whether we're beyond the point of no return. Yeah. yeah. Um, and how do I feel about a climate as a climate scientist about this? Um, and that's a difficult question to answer. Yeah. Um, and you also get climate deniers that you have to talk to, um, and sometimes that is very difficult um, because of. So I, I look at the stratospheric circulation and I look at processes in the stratosphere. So, but uh, and I feel I have to. I feel over the years I've had to learn a lot of the broader aspects of climate science and know about ice core science and know about what goes on in other areas of climate science purely because people will come up and expect you to know everything about this really massive field right. and they'll ask questions about it and then you'll you also you don't want to mislead them and you want to get the science right but yeah. it means knowing about it that's right but it's outside of your area so yes. you're not intimately familiar with it in the same way that you are with the just the stratosphere yeah, yes exactly. so you start off with this is not my area of expertise <laughs> but yeah these are the things i know about it and these are possible references of reputable science sources yeah um, so what do you say if you don't mind like if somebody did ask you Oh, hey, are, are we all doomed? What do you, it is difficult, right? It's a weird position to be put in, but it is a position we're put in sometimes. So, like, how, how do you handle that? What what sort of things do you say? It depends. It depends what you mean by all doomed. Yeah. I mean... Well, that's the first game. Your mind starts racing. Like, <laughs> yes. okay, what do they mean by that exactly? And how do I... Which aspect of doomed do I... And it depends <laughs> do I where, with? where they're thinking about. I mean, on a regional scale, some islands are possibly doomed i mean with yeah. sea level rise they're going under and they're mm. already being flooded yeah so yeah low-lying areas coastal areas migration out of those places so if someone from those areas is asking me that question and i'm like yeah probably yeah. actually <laughs> yeah and uh other reasons you know the planet will get so hot that it will be hard to grow crops and yeah. it'll be hard to live there and that's going to put pressure on migration as well so yeah it's a difficult question to answer and i'm not i'm not sure i have I'm not sure I have a good answer for people yeah. at this point when they come at me with that question. No, I, I don't feel like I do either. I, tr I think it sounds like we do the same thing where we try to do the best job we can in the moment relative to like what the conversation has been so far and what we've been talking about. Yeah. But it's uh, it's not a there's not a quick general solution to it. Yeah. You know, I guess the the point. I mean, uh, this this is something I've been trying to get to is how to distill how to just distill some of this picture down to its essence. And I guess um, I always keep going back to Scott Denning's approach. So he's a professor out at Colorado State, in the, and he has this uh, phrase. He says, well, climate change is simple, serious, and solvable. And what he means by that is, you know, the, the simple part is the basics are easy to understand, mm -hmm. right? You put more carbon yeah. dioxide in the atmosphere, you get more energy down here, and the planet warms up and things change. Uh, and... Serious means, uh, yeah, it, it's going to have big enough impacts that we should worry about it and do something about it. And solvable is um, his, uh, I don't want to say assertion or belief, or his um, position that there's a lot of economic opportunity locked up there in terms of, like, if you respond to climate change in a big way by making a new clean energy economy, you can actually generate a lot of wealth. And that's something that's not discussed a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and I have to always be careful when I talk about that aspect of it. Like you said, I always frame it with like, I'm not an economist. <laughs> Please go talk to some actual mm. professionals about this part of it. Yeah. But the impression I get is that actually 
it, it, it doesn't have to be a choice between, oh, let's fix climate and let's have a growing economy. You can do both. <laughs> you can do both at the same time, I think. Mm. Um, you know, maybe, well, I don't know maybe. enough about economics to be able to say that, but it feels like... Oh, it feels a bit odd to say that you can carry on having a growing economy. I don't know how you square mm. that with... I mean, eventually, we have a finite number of resources, so I don't see how indefinitely you can have a growing economy. So yeah. at some point, you're going to have to change that economic model. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know how you... Something to... Yeah, that. that's right. You can't... I mean, just exponential growth forever and ever doesn't sound <laughs> sustainable, <laughs> yes. right? It doesn't sound like it could actually happen. I think what what he... And if I can try to speak for him, perhaps foolishly, um, you know, I think what he's saying is if you... If you put a lot of work into switching our whole energy economy away from, you know, fossil fuels and towards clean energy sources that you can, in that process, you can generate a lot of wealth mm -hmm. that it doesn't have to be, the choice is not between, you know, keep doing what we're doing or live in a cave. That's not the, you know, that's, that's yeah. a false dichotomy. And I think that, I don't know, that part's not discussed very often. And, and maybe because economics is in some ways, is it harder though? It might be harder than what we do because it's you know we can I mean, do stuff like it's hard like, in a different way, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's a difficult problem because it's also mixed with politics mm -hmm. and yeah. And we have stuff like conservation of energy, you know, which we, <laughs> yes. which really helps us. But <laughs> economics doesn't necessarily have the same same sort of thing. Um, they have equations. They yeah. have differential equations. That's true. Yeah, they do. Right. Um, yeah. Do and they, they have a lot of observations. Yeah, that's true. Um, no, I, I should get an economist on here. It would be good. To, yeah, that would be <laughs> interesting. Yeah. I, keep, I keep talking how you about make, it. How do you make predictions? I mean, we yeah. take our equations and we integrate them forwards and we say this is what's going to happen. Yeah. How do you do that with an economic model? Like, How do you know it's going to hold in the future? Um, yeah, there must be some... I mean, like you said, there's it's differential equations, yeah. Mm. So there's initial conditions and boundary conditions and parameters, yes. and then you run it, and, and then you integrate it forward, and you see what happens. So yeah, it must be must be kind of similar to that. But I think the um, time scale over which you can integrate it forwards is different for an economic model. Yeah, and I guess on some level, you, you don't you don't really know what people are going to do necessarily. Yeah. I, I think there there used to be this assumption: you you assume that people act rationally. Used to be kind of one of the principles of economics and mm. maybe it's <laughs> mm. not always the best assumption but um, I think it it works for some things but anyway uh, to, I guess to, to, to climate people speculating about economics you know but at least, at least we know that like our equations work physics still works in 100 years yeah that's so true. that's true if you integrate it forwards for 100 years well the physics is still the same yeah put energy into the system and here's where it goes yeah. <laughs> yeah the oceans heat up and the land heats up and circulation spins up and you know and we know all manner of bad things then happen yeah <laughs> that's right so what, what have you been working on this week like lately um so this week a lot of my climate model runs have um come together which is nice so i'm analyzing the data from that um uh so i'm working on a project which um is looking at the variability of stratospheric ozone over Antarctica. And one of the things we're looking at is how volcanic emissions, um, specifically the sulfate aerosols, um, as a result of volcanic emissions and hydrochloric acid that's also emitted from volcanoes, will affect um, stratospheric ozone. So they will change 
the chemistry in the stratosphere, they'll change the circulation in the stratosphere, and you can get either increases or decreases um, of ozone over the polar regions. Mm. So the um, connection is between so volcanic emissions, how does that affect stratospheric ozone, and then... Specifically over Antarctica. Over yes. Antarctica, yeah. Um, okay. mm. And how, because we've had many volcanic emissions, uh, eruptions over the past 1,000 years, um, how that will change whatever's happening to ozone in that region. Mm. Um, and I'm using a big climate model to do that, so chemistry um, climate model, um, which is the same one as what the Met Office uses. Um, and I've been putting my little volcanic er um, eruptions in that model with different amounts of sulfate and different amounts of HCl and looking at how that changes the ozone. Mm. So I've done a number of runs um, recently, and some of them have just finished. I'm sort of putting together uh, the so results from that. So they're like numerical experiments that you've designed. It's not necessarily looking at, at this stage, what, what has happened. It's more like, let's do some numerical design and perform some numerical experiments so you get a clear signal of, oh, if I have a big volcanic Volcano. emission, I can cleanly track it to this impact in stratospheric yeah. ozone. So specifically looking at what you call the sort of explosive volcanoes, the big ones that actually hmm. put a load of... Um, SO2, so sulfur dioxide, oh. into the stratosphere. How big um, are, we, are we, like yellow, Yellowstone erupting uh, scale? Or, we're talking, you know? So mostly the ones that I care about are the ones in the tropics, because mm. if you put it in the tropics then and it's explosive, then it has a high chance of um, getting into the stratosphere. So the ones that I care about are around Indonesia, so on the edge of the Pacific Ring of Fire. Mm. Um, so things like Pinatuba, which was in 1992, I think. Um, uh, that's a big one that we know a lot about. Yeah. There were lots of measurements around there. Um, and that's an example of a volcano that I might be interested in. Yeah. I haven't done a what you call a Pinatuba case study yet, so around a specific volcano, but I'm looking at that sort of volcanoes. Yeah, you just reminded me that that's the... And you can obviously tell me where I get this wrong, if I get this wrong in bits, but yeah, the circulation of the atmosphere is such that if you want to get something into the stratosphere... The tropics is a good place to start, yeah. right? You, there's, most, there's a circulation, the convection goes you know, straight up and that, and then that helps most, most of the um, air that enters the stratosphere from the troposphere does so over the tropical region. Mm. Um, so you have this sort of tropical chimney of air mm -hmm. that's going up. Because um, it's hot there, this, right? <laughs> it's hot, so you get convection. Well, so that, that's, in, that's in the troposphere. Mm -hmm. um, and it... it that takes your air up to the tropopause, but then beyond right. that, you get a slow circulation that takes your air across the tropopause um, into the stratosphere and then slowly pullwards over the course of um, a few years up to a decade. Then yeah. the circulation moves slowly pullwards yeah. and then goes back down. Is that this uh, Brewer Dobson, Dobson circulation? circulation? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. if I get it into the tropical pipe, into the Robert Dobson circulation, then those chemical species get transported slowly to the poles. That's and then you see an impact over ozone over the polar regions yeah so i guess if you had two if you had a you know yellowstone eruption it would have to be quite i, I don't know what latitude yellowstone is at if you know um I'll go, i'm gonna get it wrong a bit but i want to say probably 40 uh, maybe maybe closer to 50 mm, that's in 50, the extra you know? tropics yeah. so to get it it would it would have to be very explosive yeah 
Because you, you really want to hit that sweet spot where the air is being transported upwards into the stratosphere, and yeah. that's the best way. Yeah. The best place to do that is in the tropics. Is in the tropics, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the only reason I keep bringing up Yellowstone is it's considered like a super volcano. You know, it's yeah, one of these you have a lot of science fiction novels written about Yellowstone <laughs> going completely crazy and then us being plunged into sort of nuclear winter type situation. Right. I don't know much about that. As, uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not sure about whether that... I mean, a big enough volcano could do that, but I think it would take a very big volcano yeah. to do that. Okay, so you've got your Pinatubo, you've got the ones that are in the tropics, and those, those are the ones you are numerically deciding to... I'm going to make this one ex- explode and yes. erupt and then, uh, and then see what happens. It'll spew a load of sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere and then we'll see what happens. Could the, the, you said, okay, it quickly gets from the surface to the tropopause and then it takes a longer time you know it takes a long time you said there's a slow circulation mm-hmm. that that moves it from the tropics to the to the poles like to antarctica um is that can you remind me is that like mostly eddy driven like the weather the stratospheric weather or is there kind of a slower mean circulation maybe this there there is a i mean it, it it's driven by um so part of the circulation is driven by waves that are um, mm. going up into the stratosphere, and those waves break a bit like waves breaking on a beach. Yeah. Um, and those waves basically inject momentum and energy into the stratosphere. Mm-hmm. And when they do that, the air has to go somewhere, and this air just moves forwards. Yeah. So it just drags it up from the troposphere. Um, so it, it drags it up from um, the tropical region over to the polar region. Yeah. So it um, the waves break. Because they hit like a density difference, right? More, more or less, yeah. They hit a region yeah. where the amplitude gets large and um, they dump the energy and momentum in that region. Yeah, and that happens throughout the stratosphere. Which, yeah, like you said, waves crashing on the beach do the same thing. You know, the, the wave is there, but then the amplitude gets bigger. Yes, no, I mean the, the mechanism is different, right? The mechanism but, you know, is different. Yeah. There isn't really a beach. I mean, there's no sand. Right. Uh, <laughs> but a similar type idea. You can think of the waves just sort of heading towards a beach and then crashing. The same thing happens where it's head up from the troposphere um, and then they crash in the stratosphere. And you get all manner of waves that are being generated in the troposphere. Because, yeah. I mean, it's a very, the troposphere is very turbulent. You get lots of weather systems, you have lots of mountains, lots of things happening. Yeah, really dense air relative to the rest of the, to the atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah, convection, <laughs> things bubbling, bubbling away, up, you know. yes. Yeah, setting off all kinds of waves, yeah. Um, okay, cool. So once the... Um, so uh, you said you're analyzing some of those climate runs. Mm-hmm. Do you have any initial uh, bits of interest or initial interesting results? Or um, So we think at the moment that chemistry is going to be important to what the response is. Um, and so my model runs have some new bits of heterogeneous chemistry in them, um, specifically the interactions between bromine and chlorine over that region so, sorry um, heterogeneous remind me is uh i'm not i'm not a chemist exactly <laughs> remind me what that is heterogeneous um it's a heterogeneous reaction right so yeah we're... is it like uniform in some way yeah like, i mean you know, just just yeah take it as sort of different chemical reactions happening and some of them happened on aerosols um so yeah it, I've put in a bunch of chemical reactions, okay, basically. Okay. Yeah, there's chemical, uh, chemical reactions. There's a yeah. bunch of chemical reactions <laughs> okay. in there that yeah. have been added, which we think are important in the stratosphere. Um, and 
so what what I think is going what I think might happen is that when you when you put in sulfate from a volcano um, and you don't put in any HCl emissions or you don't have those chemical reactions you might actually see a small increase in the amount of ozone over the polar regions because um, if you think of sulfates um, in the atmosphere in the stratosphere then that cools the stratosphere slightly which changes um, the ozone destruction um, over the poles so you might get slightly more ozone than you would normally have mm. um, but if you put HCl then that changes the chemical reactions um, over the poles and you might get ozone depletion instead mm. uh, with the same amount of sulfate and that's what I'm hoping to see so no, I think I'm seeing a hint of that at the moment okay so like the chemical composition can even affect the sign of the trend, trend of the ozone, like ozone. whether the ozone goes up or goes, goes down. down. Yeah, so it's, it could be really sensitive to the specific kinds of reactions mm-hmm. that you have going on there. Yeah. Okay. And that's something that people have found in other models, but they haven't um, they haven't looked at them at all in the model with those extra chemical reactions in. Mm. And I'm wondering whether adding those chemical reactions will actually change the sign of the response. And then, um, so my background is not in chemistry, um, mm. and I am. Throughout this postdoc, which I've been doing for the past year, I've I've been sort of getting a crash course in atmospheric chemistry yeah. and learning very quickly what's happening there. But I don't fully understand what the processes are. Yeah, it's uh, it's more complex than you might might think. You know, there's um, lots of different species. And I, I talked to Alex Archibald a few weeks ago on mm-hmm. here, and uh, yeah, he, he gave us some nice detail about some of those reactions, like uh, volatile organic compounds and how they you know they can actually in, induce or encourage cloud formation which has an effect on the amount of sunlight that gets to the earth's surface so yeah the, the, the chemistry can absolutely be a really important part of it so that the um the part of the climate system that i used to work on a, a bit more has to do with like the southern ocean and how it responds to winds mm-hmm. so the part of this story that you just mentioned that i'm more familiar with is you know if you change ozone like stratospheric ozone over antarctica that changes the strength of the circulation that changes the strength of the the winds you know around antarctica and the southern ocean yeah and that can change the uh, structure like the structure of the ocean the structure of the southern ocean and how good of a job it does at absorbing carbon (laughs) and Mm -hmm. heat from the atmosphere so i think that's a really interesting uh, i don't know if that's a big effect but there's a whole you know, a coupled process there that I can picture you know, the, a volcanic eruption in the tropics mm-hmm. eventually changing the chemistry of the stratospheric ozone over Antarctica changing the winds around the southern ocean changing the strength of the southern ocean carbon sink it's really cool to think about that whole chain of it will be events, it will be know. connected but it yeah. depends on whether um, that does actually have a significant effect right. all, the, all the way down to yeah. the ocean yeah. um, so one thing that would happen is if you change the ozone, then um, you change many aspects of the circulation also, and you change how much um, radiative forcing you get. So mm-hmm. how much um, of the sort of upwelling radiation, the sunlight that's coming down, and the radiative balance in the atmosphere changes because you change the ozone. And if this ozone change is very large, then you might get a larger change. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not sure how that would affect the ocean circulation in the air. No, no um, it, but it is a. This part of the reason why it's very complex, because um, this whole system is very connected. Um, that's right. And you have a lot of effects and feedbacks to think about. Yeah. So what you try to do is you try and design your experiments so you 
you look at one part of this chain and you try and isolate um, a certain feedback for a certain force, like putting in a volcanic eruption. Yeah. But it is going to be complex. Yeah, that's right. No, and, and all I was getting at was, you know, there is a chain of mechanisms. And, like, I, I'm, I'm with you that if I had to guess, it probably isn't a very strong, you know, so driver. Well, yeah, exactly. But I don't know. It depends. I haven't done it, I mean, right? The largest so. volcano that we had is called Samalus, I think, and mm-hmm. that was that was huge. That put a lot of sulfate into the mm. atmosphere. Um, so maybe that's that would have maybe. had an effect. Yeah, but I don't know. The nice thing about modeling, like the way you're doing it, is that you can almost do this uh, MythBuster style. Did you ever <laughs> see that show? Yes. Yeah, where you can do like you know, I've heard first, about it. I don't think I've watched it. Yeah. Well, they, they typically, you know, they, they would test ideas, right? They would test myths, and they would test. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of popular notions that people have about, like, uh, I don't know, I can't, uh, maybe the code, uh, one could be, uh, they must have done this, I don't know if they did or not, but you know how there's an idea that, uh, oh, toast, whenever you make buttered buttered toast, oh, like it always it lands on, yes. like, so they would test that, right? They mm-hmm. would like, well, how do we set up a, an experimental mm-hmm. environment where we would test that? So they do, they test a myth. And then for the second part, they try to replicate their results. They would mm-hmm. try to like, okay, how can we get this thing to happen? Like, how can we get, mm-hmm. I don't know, the toast to always fall uh, in that particular way? That's the most boring example from that show I could give because <laughs> they do a lot of really cool, you know, explosions and stuff like that. But I'm just failing at coming up with a better one. So you could do a Mistbuster style thing in your model setup where you say, was that ever important? Was was volcanic, you know, is is volcanism important to the Southern Ocean carbon sink? Mm-hmm. And then you could, if you conclude yes or no, either way, you could go, okay, but how big would the volcanic eruptions mm-hmm. have to be to have an impact on the Southern Ocean? You try to replicate that. You try to, like, make that happen and see just how crazy you have to turn up the, the, vol- uh, the volcano, the volcanic eruptions and the composition to have an impact on the Southern mm-hmm. Ocean. Um, and that, well, that's, that's, you know... Scientifically, it could be really interesting, but it also is just fun, and it's one of the things I like about model world is that we can hit our models with hammers and see what they do, and, and yes. yeah, see how all of that. So, so currently, I'm hitting it with a very broad hammer mm. to see what it does. But the nice thing about the project is the other half is experimental um, and involves um, people who went and dug up an ice core from Antarctica. Oh, cool! And so, what we're hoping is that the idea is that the ozone changes which changes the amount of surface uv you get um and that surface uv then becomes a signal that's imprinted in your ice core mm. so if you date your ice core properly then you should have periods where you have volcanoes and other periods where you don't have volcanoes and in the periods you have volcanoes you can look at the amount that the surface uv has changed because it changes chemical processes in your ice core um and you can figure out what the change in uv is and then from my model, I'll hopefully be able to figure out a change in UV hmm. as a result of right. my ozone change. And we'll be able to uh-huh. see whether we think what we think those volcanoes have done. So there is some matching of observations going on in the project, um, which is very, very hard to do. Hmm. Matching of observations, like you have to try to see if you can get your climate model to behave like the observation. I'm, on not, the record, going, I'm not going that far okay. at the moment yeah. um, because we don't know what the climate was like. Um, we don't know. We know what the climate was like, broadly speaking, but we don't know the exact details of what the winds and the temperatures were doing um, over the past 1,000 years. Um, but we can do things like say, oh, we think 
this is the amount of sulfate that was emitted by these volcanoes because we take the smallest volcano and we take the biggest mm. volcano and we have a range of values and then we can put that on a plot and say um, this is the response to your small volcano and oh, this is the okay. response to your big volcano mm. um, and then have all the ice score records and say this is the data from the ice score and where do they lie on that line um, and are they within what the model says right. might happen so you and that's a, the sort of thing we're doing a range of possible ways you can force it yeah. and a range of responses so, and yeah. do the responses give you a bound on um, what the atmosphere might be doing and then we put the observations within that bound oh, and that's see interesting. they fit yeah so just to make up one you could say uh, I don't know if this is a real one or relevant or but um, you could say, well, here's the range of volcanic eruptions, and here's what that did to the strength of the wind over Drake Passage. I don't know, right? And then mm-hmm. you could try to say, oh, we have some you know, measurements in the ice core of UV that we could then try to relate to that strength in the, in the wind uh, or, or something. Well, the measurements, um, the UV record from the ice core matches directly um, to, well, it will be directly influenced by how much ozone you have above. Yeah. So if it's changing the amount of ozone, and oz- the amount of ozone is largest in the stratosphere. So that's... We, we normally look at a quantity called a total column ozone, which is integrated over the entirety of the atmosphere. Yeah. And the more ozone you have, um, the more it blocks the UV from the sun. Um, so the less UV reaches your ice core. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of our direct link. Um, can you use the... Uh, can you use any of the... Ozone records from Halley, like the Long Bass records. Yes. Or, yeah. So we do we do have a Long Bass record, um, and um, I will be looking next at the specific volcano, so Pinatuba, the one I mentioned, where we have lots of satellite measurements. We have the Halley record, and we'll have the data from the ice core. So mm-hmm. that's going to be a one case study where we have we actually have a lot of information about that. Um, hmm. That sounds really exciting. Is there? Does the project have like a name or a, a you yes. know, acronym um, or something? So like it's that? called the Isolice Project. Um, <laughs> and at this point, I don't remember what the, what the acronym, acronym stands for. But Isolice? I S O L. I S O L. Dash I C E. Isol Ice. Okay, I S O L dash I C E. Uh, all right. Soul uh, might be having to do with sun or solar Yeah, I think, I think one of like the, o, the O might be ozone. I, I hope ozone. it's ozone, but I'm not entirely sure. You would think um, that one of the, yeah, the, the only O in the acronym probably is ozone. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's cool. There must be like a, probably a project website. There's a project website. There's also yeah. a blog um, written by various people um, hmm. within the group. Um, and you can see, you can see some information about the field campaign that happened um, and the progress on the project. Nice. Um, yeah, have you, do you do blogs? Like, I, I haven't. That? Um, I don't tend to do blogs, and I haven't. I've only been on this project for a year, yeah, um, yeah. and I'm only starting to get some results. But I haven't written a blog post for them yet. Yeah, I haven't done a blog in a really long time. It's uh, it's it's um it's a surprising amount of work actually. Like it if is. You, even though you are trying to write something that should be fairly simple and digestible, it's uh, it's hard to distill things down to their their essence like mm. that. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, some people are really good at just knocking them out, knocking out blog posts and just, you know, one after the other. But for some reason, it takes takes me forever. I feel um, you also have to, um, you have to be, it's not just about writing a blog, it's also about interacting with your audience, because people will mm. have questions about what you've said. Yeah. And it's to be, it's being there somehow, either on the blog itself, replying to comments, or mm. being on Twitter and talking with your audience. 
Yeah. So it is. There's a lot of work. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. You're on Twitter, right? I think. Yeah, you are. Yeah, because you, you tweet some of the Cambridge Center for Climate Science stuff. Yes. Yeah. yeah. How have you found that? Do you use that much? Is it useful for you? Or what's your what's your science Twitter experience been like? Um, it, it's really helpful because a lot of the... Um, it's interesting to sort of follow what happens around the world um, on my Twitter feed. Yeah. So you get snippets of information, very condensed snippets of information, Um from scientists around the world, and that's very helpful. You also get people um, sort of summarising very briefly the results and the papers that they've published. So if that's interesting, then you go and look up the paper. It's a sort of nice way to have all the information in one place. Yeah, um, that's right. And, and even though, you know, there's a certain l- limit to the depth of it because, you know, you can only tweet so many characters. Mm. I mean, you, you can link well, to full... I don't but think you there can... is a limit. There's a limit, but you can... It's a longer limit. That's true. There's a longer limit. A longer and limit. these days you can do the um, the threaded... Uh, I think that's the right word for yes. it. The threaded tweets where you mm-hmm. do one over N. And you just keep adding them. So, yeah, actually you can get around the limit thing, can't you? But, um, no, it, it can be a great place to start, can't it? And um, I think if you are, are careful about, you know, who you follow, it doesn't... Uh, you, I think the folks who are doing a lot of really... Uh, broad science communication and climate change communication they have to deal with so much uh, just gross human behavior <laughs> just like you know people being horrible uh, and, and and trolls and things and you, you have to develop a thick skin for that but probably i mean on our level we probably aren't I, I haven't really encountered that very much you know i don't know what your experience has been like or if it's been all right mm, for you and yeah no i mean yes i haven't had much twitter trolling right i guess i guess um maybe if, if we do maybe that's a sign that like oh well now you've reached a big enough audience that you started to attract trolls so it, in, in a weird way it could be a sign of like oh your, your reach is expanding <laughs> that now you've reached this horrible uh, <laughs> um yeah i don't know i think it's i think it's been all right for me too i, I can um i do f- I, I do feel a bit more connected to the broader kind of scientific community through it. Mm-hmm. But I think you have to be careful not to compare yourself too much with where other people are. Cause like, that's one of the dangers of any social media platform, right? Is like, if you are, if you're prone to kind of comparing yourself or to kind of, you know, it, it can make you feel a bit down. It can make you feel a bit like, Oh, look at all this stuff people are doing. Uh, but you're only seeing the highlight reel from other yeah. people's, you know, lives. You're not seeing their full, full But that's lives, kind of you know? exciting, right? Seeing that lots of people are doing very exciting things. It feels like, um, the field that you love yeah. is going forwards and lots of exciting research is going on. Yeah. The, the other thing that I quite like about Twitter is um, so that something happens um, every other year or so in the um, northern hemisphere stratosphere. It's called the southern warming. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we've got this large vortex of air um, over the North Pole. Yeah. And every other year, um, a dramatic event happens where the temperatures warm suddenly and mm-hmm. the winds reverse direction. Yeah. And it all... Like that vortex just tears itself apart yeah. or does something weird. Yeah, and you sometimes and get a double vortex. I remember when I was in grad school, there was yeah, a double you get, vortex. You get yeah. like a, two smaller daughter vortices going off or that vortex just shifts and destroys itself. Yeah. Um, and that can have an impact on the climate, um, on, sorry, on the weather mm-hmm. um, a few months afterwards um, over the Northern Hemisphere. So it's important. Um, but when that event starts happening or that event is happening... Uh, there's a very small group of people on Twitter who get very excited about this. Yeah, um, I, I hear for the sort of the 
old school people, there's a mailing list where when that starts happening, people start posting to this mailing list saying, mm. oh, look, there's a sudden warming happening. But the same thing happens on Twitter. Oh, so really if you follow good. the right people, yeah. then there's a sort of excitement that builds up from a Twitter of weather nerds oh, man. <laughs> that go on. So we should look at your followers. Uh, follow, look, look at the list of people you're following to find some weather. Oh, I will, find some I weather will retweet when that happens. Nice. If, if an event like that is happening, I'll get yeah. very excited. Um, the sudden stratospheric warming. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I remember I was in uh, I was in grad school when I think it was a double vortex that happened that that year. Um, I could be maybe I'm misremembering it, but I, I, was, I took a, a short stratospheric dynamics class mm-hmm. with uh, with Thomas Berner out there, okay. and, um, and that, that was really fun. And every day we would look at the uh, I think we were looking at the potential vorticity mm-hmm. you know on some pressure surface up mm-hmm. in the stratosphere to kind of check like okay what's the stratosphere doing today mm-hmm. it, it was cool to have that kind of you know everyday contact with it and that and you're right if you're plugged into like the people who are looking at that stuff and who are excited about yeah. this stuff it, it rubs off on you a bit you know you get excited about like oh that's cool there's something happening big scale on the planet in real mm-hmm. time that i can you know be aware of and kind of feel like i'm you know witnessing <laughs> in some way in the ocean we have a it didn't. It didn't really happen that much this this year. I don't think. I didn't. Uh, I need to double check. But for the past two years, we had this uh, Polina open up in the Southern Ocean. Yes. I don't know. I don't know if you saw this, right? Mm-hmm. It was a, yeah, big big Polina in the sea ice, an o- open area of sea ice uh, that, so no, that nobody. So that's the Sea that you. No, this is um, out kind of not quite in the Weddell Sea. It's like um, a bit a bit east of the Weddell Sea. Okay. It's um, it was a big open area of sea ice uh sorry in the sea ice a big Mm -hmm. hole big hole in the sea ice basically that uh nobody had seen since the 70s so back in the 70s when the satellite era started um they noticed you know for the first couple of kind of seasons that oh well uh, you know a big hole forms in the sea ice Mm -hmm. annually uh and persists for a few months and then goes away and then those holes uh didn't return for decades like it was in the 70s they showed up a couple years in a row uh and then so everybody was kind of wondering like oh did we just catch the tail end of that phenomenon has Mm -hmm. the climate shifted and that's now not going to happen anymore or is that a cycle and uh i think yeah two years ago the polina opened back up again (laughs) you know after decades of absence and it happened you know twice uh two years in a row so how does that Um, affect us um what, what what changes as a result of this polina um, well, it, it could affect, um, I think it's not super well understood, but it could affect the kind of partition of heat between the atmosphere and the ocean mm-hmm. because, you know, when you get the polina, there's often kind of deep convection associated with it. So okay. it kind of changes how the heat is distributed in the, in the ocean. How, how big um, is it? Um, whew, I think it is, okay, I'm going to get it wrong off the top of my head probably, but that's okay. Um, I want to say, I could look it up, but it, I think I think it's on the same order as like you know the UK, like it's oh, right. bigger okay. than the UK. Like That's it's huge. Pretty, yeah, it's a huge, huge area. Yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of like what impact it has on the weather, it's probably not as direct as like oh well when the you know polar vortex you know does something interesting, then that has an. It's, I don't think it's that immediate and direct. It's more about. But statistically, they, you know, um, when you get a sudden warming then you have a larger chance of cold weather over mm. Europe, which to me just means, oh, I'm probably going to get snow in the UK. So that gets me right. really excited. Oh, so whenever yeah. it happens, I just have that <laughs> tiny hope that snow. I know that statistically there's a chance that we'll get possibly colder weather snow. and possibly snow. Yeah. 
<laughs> when you put it in the language of the statistics, like, well, for the Polina, we have very poor statistics, right? It happened twice, and then in the 70s mm. a couple times, and then no other time. So yeah, well, we actually, don't have very many Actually, the instances. polar vortex breakup, um, so it was happening from the... From the point where we have satellite observations, so from um, 1979 onwards, it was happening pretty regularly. Mm -hmm. And then from the 1990s um, to the year 2000, it happened very rarely. And Mm. people thought, oh, this is weird. Um, This used to happen every other year or so. And then it stopped. And there was a period where you don't have many of them. Um, And then from the year 2000, it started back up again Mm. and started happening every other year. Any idea? Does folks have a a sense of why that was the case? I mean, this is... is that kind of the forefront of like nobody's really sure about that or um i don't think we have a long enough record to be able mm. to look at that but yeah. certainly when you do long model runs um of 200 years or so you see periods of 10 years where you have enough variability and mm. well you have a large amount of variability in when it happens so you do see periods of 10 years where there might not be very many of those events right okay um so there are some like decadal cycles and how there often is, there the... is something happening um mm. But it's all part of the variability. But I don't think we have a... I don't... It, again, this is... I'm going to say it's not my area of expertise, yeah, and yeah, I don't, I'm yeah. not sure what's going on there. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. Uh, I just... Uh, so that folks have found that similar kind of uh, change in frequency of the sudden stratospheric warmings in model world, but even in a model, like... That's another one of the crazy things about you know modeling is like if you have a sufficiently complex model, it might reproduce the behavior of the real system mm-hmm. or the real climate system, but you might have just as hard of a time understanding it because it's so complicated, right? And there's so many different different feedbacks and things going so, on. So that's so, you know, um, that's a bit that I'm interested in. Yeah. So you have a very complex model, you have lots of complex feedbacks, and um, so what I'm going to be doing as of next year, um, middle of next year. Um, for the next three years is I'm hoping to look at what you call hierarchies of models. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in processes and how things are connected together. So if I change one thing in the stratosphere, I want to know how that affects the rest of the stratosphere. Now you you might have a result from a big climate model where you've got lots of processes. But what you can do is you can um, have what you call a hierarchy of models. You have models of different complexity. Mm -hmm. Um, So you start off with a very simple model where it's just... Um, a rotating sphere and a rotating yeah. atmosphere. Might even be pen and uh, paper on the bottom. Might even be pen and paper, exactly. Or it might even be a 1D column mm-hmm. um, radiative transfer model. I mean, you get heat from the sun and the heat bounces around in the atmosphere and you figure out what happens there. Um, and then you generally, you, you build that up all the way um, with a 3D model and maybe a 3D model with um, some very simple representation of ozone yeah. chemistry and then some more complex representation yeah. of chemistry and you better chemistry and you just add layers to mm-hmm. this cake mm-hmm. um, and then you get more more and more complicated and at each stage if you're adding complexity you're basically adding a process yeah and you get to understand how if you remove one bit of your model then maybe one of the connections stops happening and then yeah. that tells you something about what mechanisms happen in the atmosphere. Yeah. So that's why I want to get. I'm a big fan of that approach. I like that that structured hierarchical approach. Yeah, Isaac Held had a really nice article about mm. it a few years ago. I think it was in the bulletin of the American Meteorological Society, if I remember right. Yeah, yes, BAMS. BAMS. Yeah, yeah, he had a really nice mm. uh, article outlining you know that every time you move between different levels of that hierarchy, you know, from a simple one, simple model, simple representation to a more complex representation, 
Um, I can't remember how he put it exactly, but he was like, yeah, you learn a lot by adding and taking away those com- complexity, mm-hmm. sources of complexity. Yeah. So what happened? And it, I mean, what you mentioned at the start of the podcast is a good example of, oh, okay, well, what happens to this, you know, volcano, troposphere, stratosphere, ozone system if mm-hmm. you add this kind of chemistry? Yeah. How does that change the, the picture? Um, and that's a great example of a, of a hierarchy, right? If we get a simple climate model. Okay, maybe that's not a full hierarchy because in a full hierarchy, hierarchy it, you like to have a super a, simple one. Yes. So but you want a couple to take levels that. of it. You want to take that problem and go to a simpler and simpler model to yeah. understand actual processes. Yeah. Um, but there could be a couple levels in your hierarchy of like the, the climate model with no chemistry, the climate model with chemistry. <laughs> yeah, mm. for example. So was that, um, you mentioned Isaac Held. I was at um, a meeting in Princeton to celebrate the work of Isaac Held. They called mm. it the Held Fest. Held Fest, okay, um, yeah. Which was, which was really interesting. Um, and basically Isaac Held sort of expanded on some of those points. Um, and one of the, I guess one of the challenges um, that people felt that climate scientists face is that you are, on one hand, you're trying to understand processes, and on the other hand, um, you're also trying to increase the resolution of climate models, and you're trying to add processes to make your models more and more complex. So these days, models are moving towards Earth system models, mm, yeah. which have far more processes in them. They have land, vegetation, um, and I think the Met Office model is even going to get a fire model. So um, yeah. things catching, vegetation catching fire because you get land fires, mm-hmm. um, and that's important for the atmosphere. Um, so there's a tussle between understanding processes and actually just putting more and more in, yes. into your model yeah. and going to high resolution, which actually produce more complex results. Mm-hmm. And we need both of those, right? We do need the full monster models, you know, with every process mm. that we can, that we think is important, you know, in them. But the danger is that kind of, we already said it, but I, I like saying it this way sometimes that if you have a really complex model, the, the problem is, oh, now you have two things you don't understand. <laughs> You know, now you have the real world you don't understand and you have the model you don't understand, which is where the hierarchies come in, which yes. is where you need the simple representations to sharpen. Uh, uh, David Marshall likes to call it sharpening the questions. <laughs> and he uses the bottom levels of the hierarchy, the simple models to like sharpen mm-hmm. the research questions he wants to address, which is a, a, another way to think about it. But, but once um, you have that understanding, you can then go and improve your climate model. Yeah. But then what does improve your climate model mean? Mm. And that also takes time, like taking your understanding and then maybe changing the representation of the physics in your model, some of the parameterizations and changing the way the model behaves. Yeah. And that's a very, it's a difficult task because the model is so big. Hmm. Um, and then you need to evaluate that to see what your changes have done. Yeah, for sure. So you need big modeling centers, you need big modeling groups and professional programmers who really know how to program which yes, you know it's I difficult i don't want to speak for you but you know i can i can do some programming but that's not that's certainly not my i wouldn't i wouldn't put that at the very it's top not, of my of my i CV guess you don't, you don't do it you do it because you need to solve a scientific yeah. problem so you do it for a purpose rather than you're writing good software because you want good software right out right. there and that's the difference right yeah but we need folks who are like scientific programmers in the sense of they know how to write really good code, you know, efficient code for like for model development, like for the purposes that we're doing it. Mm. I just mean we need lots of people is all I'm getting at. You know, <laughs> we, we can't, you know, th- that science is very community driven and we need, you know, people, we need a, a full range of folks who are, you know, both thinking about model hierarchies like you are and folks who are really good at programming who can eventually, you know, plug these bits into the complex climate models 
you know, we need. But you also need people to talk to each other a lot. Yeah, that's true. And that's also difficult. It can be, right? Because every subfield gets its own little vocabulary and every subfield gets yeah. its own set of problems that it thinks is the most important thing to, to have, think about. And you have people working all over the globe on these problems. So yeah. you do. there's a sort of barrier. You, you need to make the effort to talk to people regularly and make sure that you know what other people are doing and they know what you're doing. Yeah, I guess Twitter helps with could help with that potentially if people are happy to share you know what they're doing at the moment mm. as opposed to to polish things um and i guess people try emailing to do that people try slack groups to 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 do that i don't don't think i've found a good um Mm. way of solving that problem because not everyone you talk to is on twitter and not everyone is active on the slack group and i mean all the slack is quite nice i find it works better for groups that are local to a region i don't think it works very well if you've got a large if you sort of over the pond yeah um, so I mostly do the emailing thing yeah. um, and occasional Skype conversations, but you miss, it's uh, difficult. Yeah, and you, well, Skype helps. You at least get a little bit of body language then. Yes. <laughs> you can tell like a bit more about when somebody proposes something, how they're, how they're feeling about it mm. or what, what their sense is of, is this going to work really or not? <laughs> what do you think? Um, well, when you say you something know. and they look at you as if it's not going to work, <laughs> yeah. you, you get that feedback. Yeah, that's right, because that's, um, that's how you know if somebody understands what you're saying right you kind of yeah. like you use their body language yeah when you're just emailing you, you, that's all stripped out you don't have mm-hmm. any of that so yeah then there's no substitute for like face-to-face meetings really you know mm-hmm. and that's one of the big one of the unfortunate things is that face-to-face meetings for us involves a lot of carbon because we have to get in airplanes and go mm-hmm. you know to conferences mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one of the balances to strike there. It's like, well, to do climate science, I need to, f- I sometimes need to fly. So, mm-hmm. and that's unfortunate that it ends up putting carbon in the atmosphere. And it's it's something I think about, and I, I try to like, I try to make sure I, um, you know, make efficient use out of like, if I gotta fly, I, I'm gonna, yes. I'm gonna go try to make really good use of my time yeah. and try to make it worth it, and you know, try try to really get something out of the conference I'm going to, for example, you know. I guess yeah. it, it, it's a bit like everything else. So you know there's a problem and then you basically try to reduce your impact because, I mean, generally telling people to stop doing something is very difficult and yeah. people are very unwilling to stop doing something. So if you say, stop all air travel, then that's a very difficult thing to do because sometimes that air travel is necessary. Yeah. But if you think about it and say, instead of, you know, two transatlantic flights a year, maybe I'll reduce that to one transatlantic flight yeah. a year yeah. and make that more efficient, and that's a very good thing. Yeah, that's right. Like, if you got to go overseas or, you know, continental or, you know, to a different continent, maybe try to stay yeah. longer, right? Yeah. <laughs> Potentially, like, if you got to do that, try to make it a big, a longer trip. Mm-hmm. Maybe try to avoid, if possible, just going for, like, a day or two or, yeah. like, you know. And I, I'm, I'm someone who is guilty of occasionally having done that, but I, I try not to. <laughs> I try not to. And I want to reduce the amount of times I do that sort of thing. Yeah, all, I want to do longer like, trips. All things like driving or mm. eating less meat. You, yeah. You go, maybe one day a week, I'll try to have no meat in yeah. my diet. Um, or maybe a few days a week, even. Yeah. I've, I've very casually tried to do the vegetarian thing. And uh, the, the reason I've had to kind of casually do it is uh, I really don't like onions. <laughs> so imagine, like, you, you know, it's kind of a pick-two situation, right? You can be vegetarian... And not like onions, and 
you know, you, you basically have to, and, and eat out. Like if you ever have mm-hmm. to eat, like you know, here in the canteen at Bass or where, wherever, you know, it's really hard to satisfy all three of those constraints. You either you either have to like prepare all of your own meals, which is kind of impractical mm-hmm. um, for for me, you know. Anyway, as a and uh, or you just yeah, that's basically it, right? Like if you, I'm, <laughs> I'm rambling on a bit, but I just mean like, uh, I think it's fine to do the casual veggie thing and like just. Yeah. I've tried to like increase the proportion of veggie meals that I eat, but beyond that, I haven't stressed out about it too much. I, I know that going 100% veggie is going to put me square in the face of this onion problem because everybody loves these things and they're in everything, <laughs> and I, I don't get it at all. I'm pretty sure I have a different taste experience than most folks when I when I taste an onion. Like I imagine, you know how there's this. Uh, thing where cilantro literally tastes different to some people because of some yes. genetic thing. I, I think I, yeah, I coriander no tastes like soap to some people. Yeah. I, I, I'm not aware of a genetic thing that makes onions taste like soap. I'm not either. I'm not either. Maybe there is one. I don't know. But uh, that would be interesting to hear about. I, I, want, I sometimes wonder if it's something like that uh, that prevents me from... Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm having a different experience the from the rest garlic? of the world. Garlic? Uh, I'm okay with some garlic. I'm alright okay. with garlic, yeah. So it's it's not all bulb-shaped. Uh, type type of things. Obvious. Yeah, yeah. So I think, um, yeah, I think I like that point about yeah, just be aware of the some of the impacts that you might be having and try to reduce them. Yeah. But you know, you don't have to stop your life necessarily, and mm. you know that you, you do still need to be you know to do your your job and to live and to you know make make your life work. And there are other constraints that you have to satisfy too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so. I wanted to get back to the science stuff a little bit. Um, are there any, do you, do you anticipate in your field, in the area that you're familiar with, do you think there might be any big changes in the near future or do you foresee it more as uh, we're going to keep making you know, good incremental progress in these areas or do you think there's any development over the horizon that might you know, break some barrier or uh, you know what I'm getting at? Like, will there be a, a big, a big change, or do you think it will be a lot of small changes? And I'll, I'll let you define. Very difficult question to well, answer. Well, I'll, I'll let you. You um, know, feel free to be speculative, and it's it's okay. This is a safe safe environment, right? You're not gonna. This this isn't gonna. You know, this is a this is a place where we can be a little more speculative. We don't have to. You know, this this isn't a prediction that's going to be cast in stone or something, mm-hmm. right? This is like. Your your intuitive feeling for stratos you know stratospheric dynamics and the problems that you've been looking at you know, are there any things that and I'll let you define small and big I mean you you have a you probably have a feeling for what a small change small contribution or change in the field would be versus what a like a big change in the field would be that is sounding you know? a lot like an interview question is it well yes <laughs> you don't even have to answer it if you don't want to I don't I'm not looking for sound bites or anything you know if you if you feel like that, that problem is so ill-defined that you don't even want to go there. That's totally cool. That's fine with no, me. It's okay. It's, um, it's just so uh, you know how you write research grants, and that's the mm-hmm. sort of question that you have to address. Yeah, that's true. Um, as sort of one of your boxes of where do you think this is going, and where do you think your research is going, and yeah. fitting in that. And I find that a very difficult question to answer. It is right. Um, yeah, I sometimes think about it in terms of techniques, but I think. In terms of incre- incremental progress, um, the observational data record is getting longer mm-hmm. by the day. And 
Yeah. Um, hmm. So one of the things that came out at this HelpFest um, meeting was that some person had published a paper 10 years ago saying, in 10 years' time, we'll have enough data that we'll be able to beat down the noise and have good enough statistics that we'll be able to answer this question. Okay. So someone yeah. then wrote to them 10 years later and said, well, you said that, that it would take about 10 years of data, so it's now <laughs> yeah. 10 years later, so what's the answer? What's the, yeah, here we go. <laughs> um, what was the... <laughs> so we've said a lot of things like that in the past 10 years of, oh, the observational record is too short, we can't get good enough mm. statistics. So I think that's now happening. Okay. And um, So, we're, you, so you're, we're crossing some thresholds in terms of the sample we're, we're, sizes. Yes. Yeah. I, th- I think we're getting to the point where we actually have a long enough data series that we'll be able to say things about cool. um, hmm. processes in the atmosphere. Do you have an ex- um, example? Or like, do you remember? <laughs> Don't worry if you can't think of one, it's cool. I, w- I was terrible at coming up with examples earlier. I, the worst Mythbusters example ever. Um, I think well, in terms like, of trends, you know, yeah. just, just gaining some confidence. I, I guess the example that springs to mind is, um, well, I guess stratospheric ozone. So hmm. um, we've had... Um, so stratospheric ozone had been declining um, and with the Montreal Protocol and other um, agreements that came after the Montreal Protocol this actually um, reduced the amount of ozone depleting substances uh, in the atmosphere and we know it's going to recover at some point and I believe we're on the in the global sense we're on the cusp of recovery Mm. so one of the things that I'm hoping we will see um, and some papers already argue that you're seeing some amount of recovery, but we're at the very bottom yeah. of this minimum, right. and it's going to go back up. Um, so I feel that's one of the things that will happen. And we're about yeah. The observational record is getting long enough that at this point you're going to see the recovery. Yeah. Um, Alex Sorchable did mention that there were some uh, illegal emissions of uh, ozone-destroying compounds uh, that have been traced back to um, the uh, broadly kind of Asia and. Uh, that uh, mm. that was a cause for concern. Uh, that, that is a cause for concern mm-hmm. for for him and for uh, the field and for uh, ozone in general, right? So, but the thing ho- is, we, we do we do have a lot of satellite observations, and when things like that happen, it we can say something is happening that yeah. shouldn't be happening, and we have those measurements. You can pin it down, um, and, and then that made the news. I think it was there was a BBC article about this when yeah. that happened. Yeah, I think so. so. I don't know what happened after that necessarily. I haven't, I haven't heard an update. But, but it, it makes it makes the I mean, you can't just do it covertly. Um, eventually, right. people notice. Yeah, um, and then you know, governments can put pressure on your government, and well, what, I, I don't know what happens. That, you yeah. know, yeah, don't know what happened after that one. Yeah, um, yeah. So the uh, usually what we end up doing. There's no hard and fast format on the show, but like you know, we, we tend to talk about some science, and then we tend to talk about like. Well, you said you listen to a couple of them, like the the pathway. So like. Before you were at Bass, I know you were up the road in the mathematical sciences mm-hmm. department here at the mm-hmm. University yep. of Cambridge, right? Yeah. Yes. So that was that was, my that was your PhD. PhD, yeah, with uh, Peter Haynes, right up yes. there. Yeah. So what? Um, and this is now. Yeah. Okay. So what? What was that like? Like that was. Um, Different department, right? Different atmosphere, different environment. I, I spent some time in both places, right? And I think you know Bass. Uh, the you know British Antarctic Survey, it's it's uh, this feels different to any other kind of academic place I've worked because we have so many folks who are doing lots of logistics, lots of like on the on the ground. You know, how do you get to Antarctica and back? There's a and, real, and the fact that half you know, half the people leave when it gets to winter yeah. is, is a bit 
of the building sort of empties out and everyone is going down south. Yeah, that's right. So there's a real, it's tied to that, that, sort that of cycle. field work cycle. Yeah. yeah so there, and we don't really, we're not really tied to that kind of academic calendar, mm-hmm. you know, because we don't have classes that we teach here. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's an interesting kind of contrast between the two places. Was that, was that jarring at all coming over here to a different kind of setup or, I mean, you, you were pretty familiar with that I, already. I was, though, because so. I mean, um, the various departments do talk to each other through the Cambridge Centre for Climate Science, and yeah. you've got lots of seminar series happening mm-hmm. um, in Bath. So you, I, I was cycling over regularly yeah. to attend talks here. So I mean, you already had um, a sense of the place, basically. And, and there were shared PhD students between Dempt and Bath mm-hmm. at that point. So you hear a lot about what goes on at Bath. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so you already. Had but that, that but sense. I didn't know that much about the field work before coming here. Right. And when you get here, you, you learn a lot about what happens on the field. Um, and because my group is heavily into ice cores, you hear a lot about the science around that. Um, yeah. So there's not so much, oh, at least within atmospheric ocean dynamics, in the mathematics department, there wasn't um, much on the side of observations. Yeah, not as much. Here, around, around here, there's, you hear a lot about what observations are being done and data sets and all of that. Yeah. So what uh, did you enjoy your... PhD experience, yes. or yeah, yeah. Is, that, yeah. is that good? I yeah, <laughs> I think a lot of people have different people have variable PhD experiences, yeah. and some people don't find it that pleasant. But yes, I was lucky. I, I had a very good PhD experience. It was very relaxed. Um, mm. um, and because of the nature of the funding, I had I had a lot of freedom to work on problems I was interested in, um, which meant I looked at different little problems and sort of went in whatever direction. Um, the science was telling me to go. Hmm. Did you feel like so it sounded like you had a good bit of freedom, like you were able to? I could go explore where your problems. I could, you know. I could think up, and I was running idealized models. And so, yes, it was basically like having it's a scientist's dream of having a little toy that you can yeah. play with and then do experiments in, and then you can look at the results. And if they're interesting, then you do more experiments on that to try and understand that. So you just yeah. follow that line, and you can kick your idealized model any way you want, and you can, you know, yeah. get. Maybe you want the Earth to rotate the other way, so you just. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't quite done that, but I have put in blobs of heating in various places in mm. my idealized model and looked at what the circulation did to those blobs of heating, and interesting things came out of it. Um, so it was really nice. Was that a stratospheric circulation? Stratospheric model? circulation no. problem. Yeah. What happens when you put some blobs? What kind of troposphere did it have? Does it? Did it have like a? Was it like a boundary condition or? Uh, it, it had the troposphere. Um, yeah. Okay. But it. It was a dry model, so it didn't have any moisture, any clouds, mm. or any convection like that. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot that you can do with a model like that. Yeah, just dry dynamics. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, in, my, in my atmospheric dynamics classes uh, that I that I took, I was always kind of glad when it was in that dry dynamics world because, uh, yeah, well, I don't know, water vapor, it's com- complicated. But I mean, water vapor is you know, very interesting. It is. Yeah, it's interesting. It's complicated. Mm. Yeah. Um, so. You, so what, what, were, what sort of problems were you looking at in the idealized setup? Um, so, yeah, one of them was putting two blobs of heating in, um, just above the tropopause in the tropics and seeing what that would do. And yeah. it turns out those two blobs of heating drive a circulation depending on the shape of the blobs of heating. Hmm. Um, and that actually was driven by, an, um, by looking at some observational data and seeing that there were actually two blobs of heating there. Mm. and wondering what those blobs of heating were doing, oh, right. what the mechanisms behind them were. Um, so I looked in detail at that. Um, the other thing is um, 
in that region just above the tropopause in the tropics um, you have a large annual cycle in temperatures um, and it's about looking at what the various contributions to that annual cycle in temperatures is um, because so, so what happens in this region is all the air is getting most of the air that's getting into the stratosphere is getting in um, through this region and the temperatures are really low in that region so if you have really low temperatures then the water vapor that goes through that region in a parcel of air gets freeze dried out mm-hmm, and falls mm-hmm. back out yeah um, so that region of low temperatures basically controls how much water vapor you have in the stratosphere okay it's um, like a, it has to pass through this region, region. And, and if gets, the region's really cold then the it water vapor removes will, more water vapor yeah okay um right. And the amount of water in the stratosphere then controls all manner of things. It controls the radiative balance, um, it controls chemical reactions in the stratosphere, okay. so it's really important. That's um, cool. That it's it's so region has a pathway. lot of control over what goes yeah. on. It's a bouncer for, um, you know, it, it can either let the water vapor in or, you know, prevent it from yeah. getting into the stratosphere. And it turns out that that region also has a large annual cycle in temperatures of about mm. um, 8 Kelvin, so plus or minus 4 Kelvin or so. Yeah. Um, and we wanted to understand what exactly was driving this annual cycle in temperatures, what the processes were. And it turns out it was a mixture of the dynamics, um, the contributions from ozone changes there, and also feedbacks onto water vapour. So even though it's controlling water vapour, the water vapour changes are also controlling the temperature. So there's a nice little little complex system right. of feedbacks going on. Yeah, it's not just region. the temperature pushing things around they the temperatures responding to to ozone happening. and water vapor and to what the waves are doing so it's a yeah it's a nice little loop uh, okay and disentangling those feedbacks is what i was interested in and that was part of what what you were doing, doing and yes. yeah do, do you have any like bullet point take home <laughs> messages from that or um, so one of the bullet points is um ozone was acting to give you an annual cycle in temperatures um and water vapour was going the other way. Um, there were some non-local effects there, but briefly, ozone is trying to give you one, and water vapour is trying to reduce this annual cycle in temperatures and trying to damp out yeah. that annual cycle. And in total, the two of them together give you about 30% of that temperature change. Hmm. Okay. Um, which was, it's, it's like quantifying those processes and figuring out what contributes. Yeah. In that nice idealized way, where it's really clear, you know, you can isolate the mm. part of it that you're interested in, and that, it, and then say those are the things I think are important, and then let's look at how much each of those contribute. Yeah, um, which is really hard to do in a fully complex model because there's so many other things. But, but it on. helps you understand what's going on in the fully complex yes. model because um, because this is a region with a lot of complexity. Um, often complex models will have biases in that mm-hmm. region so you'll have either too much water vapor going mm-hmm. through or too little water vapor or the temperatures are too warm or too cold you get right. those biases happening um and by understanding what processes or what the main players involved are in that region you can then go and ask the question why is my model getting this region wrong yeah and how do i fix it in mm-hmm. a sensible way sorry you probably already said where is the region roughly like so it's, kinda... it's um it's called a tropical tropopause layer. Yeah. Um, so it's in the tropics and um, just above the tropopause. So that would be about, it's, it's a broad region. So yeah. let's say 10 to 16 kilometers. Um, right. It's where I'm interested. And that's kind of... It, it's a bit fuzzy. I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's a transition region, but it's, it's there and it's just above the tropopause. Yeah. And does that, uh, does that layer... Actually, probably higher than 15 kilometers. Yeah. 
Does it exist outside of the tropics at all, or is it just mostly... Well, that's the tropical tropopause layer. Are there layers like it in other parts of the atmosphere, or is it a, a bit... Or, or, or do you know what I'm asking, or is there like a cleaner? I, I know what you're asking, and it's a question I'm interested in, so mm. I don't have an answer to oh, it. Okay, um, it cool. It's um, so the characteristics of that layer are that um, you're getting sharp gradients in different trace gases. So ozone is rapidly increasing in yeah. that region. Yeah. Water vapor is rapidly decreasing because of the freeze drying, um, and you get a temperature minimum in that region. So you have you, you have a, a region with its own different properties. Um, so you would have a transition region also in other regions of the atmosphere, like the extratropics, but it would have a different character. So I wouldn't... The reason it's called the tropical tropopause layer is because in the tropics it has a different character to the extratropics. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. But, um, so, so it might exist in other parts of the atmosphere, but it's... You would call it something not, else because yeah, it yeah. has different properties. That's right, but it, it might be something analogous to that, analogous to the tropical tropopause layer, maybe, <laughs> in another... Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, that's cool. I, I thought of a really basic question that I feel like I, I know I used to know the answer to. Maybe I've forgotten. Can you remind me why we have an ozone layer? Like why that exists? Because it's, um, it's been a while since I thought about that. So you've got UV radiation from the sun, mm. right? And it's, that's part of it. That's part of the, the process. And you need a um, specific wavelength of UV to be able to basically give you... Um, O1D, so um, oxygen um, free radicals. Mm. Um, this is where my chemistry is failing. But you need you need a specific wavelength to be able to break the bonds to give you oxygen that then combines. So an O atom that then an O. You need the oxygen first. First, right? and the oxygen then has to exist first. First, yeah. But you also you need you need two oxygen plus another oxygen to give you three of the oxygens, yes. which is ozone. Yeah, plus um, the UV. Plus the UV, yeah. so you need a specific wavelength for UV, and that um, that gets attenuated as you go down through the atmosphere, as you get more and more atmosphere. So um, there's a sweet spot at which you get lots of ozone production. Yeah. So yeah. if I remember right, in the really early Earth's atmosphere, before there was oxygen, you know, there was no ozone layer because you didn't have, you know, any oxygen, mm-hmm. and uh, so there was no ozone layer, so the UV could just get right down to the surface, and then. Uh, I want to say it was bacteria, maybe in the ocean, that was... Um, Producing your uh, oxygen. Yeah, the, uh, there, there was a... Well, not bacteria, right? But um, the, the early organisms in the ocean started to produce oxygen, you know, as a result of their metabolism. Mm-hmm. And that, that oxygen then eventually turned into the stratospheric like the ozone layer. Um, oh, I see. You know, Sorry. Yeah. I, I thought you were asking how do you currently get it in the current atmosphere as opposed to how at some point it formed. But yes, I, w- I guess it would be that. It's, mm. At some point you you produced oxygen and we yeah. had an oxygen-rich atmosphere. Yeah. yeah, and once the oxygen is there, oxygen plus UV, you can get the ozone layer. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's right. Which then protects the surface from UV radiation, mm-hmm. which then probably, I'm guessing, allowed uh, you know life to evolve in a different way than it would have had it been bathed in UV radiation all the time. Probably, yes. Probably, yeah. Speculating a little bit. Um, yeah, so before, um, to get back to the pathway stuff, if that's if that's yeah. all right, um, where were you before uh, coming to Cambridge for your PhD? So I did my undergraduate um, in the physics department here. Um, and yeah, so it's basically undergraduate and then 
in physics and then PhD in mathematics and now I'm here for the postdoc. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So you were uh, you've been in Cambridge a while, so you, you know you know the town well by now. Yeah. It's a nice <laughs> town to live in. Yeah. Quite like it. It is. Yeah. It's really walkable. You can <laughs> bikeable. You can yes, get around. Yes. It's very recyclable. It's yeah. Very nice. Yeah. For sure. Um, yeah. The physics department. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't. I feel bad that I didn't know that because uh, that you started out That's in okay. physics. You know. Uh, I, I, yeah. I don't think I know what um, well, your background was. I, I did as well. Yeah, I started in physics and mathematics, and then ended up in. <laughs> in it's surprising the number of people who start off as um, sort of physics or engineering and come into climate. Yeah, and it, it is kind of it's very common, isn't it? And it's uh, kind of surprising because I don't know what your experience was like, but when I was in a physics department, I didn't know this was a possibility. Like I didn't know I could take my physics mm-hmm. and mathematics background and go do, you know, ocean climate atmosphere something Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's one of the things i do if i ever go around i occasionally go around and talk to like undergrad physics departments i just let them know by the way this is a pathway (laughs) you can do this i think i worked that out and at the end of my third year of physics that's when i realized Mm. um it's because in the physics degree here there's not much fluid dynamics right so atmospheric dynamics doesn't really get talked about and roughly at the end of my third year I realized this existed as a field I think that's broadly true I think in the traditional physics curriculum you basically get close to zero fluid dynamics Mm -hmm. very likely zero geophysical fluid dynamics which is a crime to me because it's so (laughs) you know it's so interesting it's interesting and it's important yeah it's worth at least like one lecture (laughs) I don't know, like, uh, nothing else. I had one lecture on fluid dynamics. Rotating, though? Was it like, no. No, No. that changes everything. (laughs) Rotation changes everything. Um, No, maybe that's just my bias, but it's interesting enough and important enough that, like, you'd think you'd at least hear about it in your undergraduate, you know, physics experience. But somehow, uh, all of, like, the fluid dynamics stuff and the climate stuff kind of went off in its own direction and even often was kind of. I think the fluid dynamics stuff ended up going with engineering, right? Because, mm. you know, fluid flow through pipes and stuff and thinking about viscosity in different environments. There's and, a lot in you know, the mathematics department here, too. So there's a lot of fluids that's true. going on. So that's mostly where it was. Yeah, that's but true. But then you come into climate science and you realize that you have to know so much, um, so many different topics. And, yeah. Uh, physics gives you a good background for that, um, but there's a lot that you need to learn. So for sure, yeah. In the atmosphere, I find I need to, so I need to know the physics, I need to know thermodynamics, I need to know the chemistry, yeah. I need to understand how to do good statistics, and that's the other part that's also, yeah. you don't get a rigorous training in that, or maybe I've avoided doing statistics whilst I was doing my undergraduate degree, but I find you need to be good at that too, yeah. and but you need to ha- know how to code. I think that's true traditionally too, that you probably wouldn't get a ton of statistics in, like a yeah. traditional physics curriculum. Yeah, and and at least when when we were going through not much programming, I don't know if that's changed now, maybe they're doing more more programming. I think they have to do programming modules and stuff these days. Yeah. But, um, but I think kids these days um, pick up programming, I mean... I got my first computer when I was like seven years old or something. Yeah. Um, but these days, people are on their tablets from a very young age. Yeah, that's true. And if you're interested in programming, I think you'll you'll go into that direction you'll and you'll start coding it. quite early. Yeah, there's um, Code Spark Academy, which is like a mm. kid friendly app that teaches programming concepts. That's kind of cool. Um, so my my sons played around with that a little bit. So they they teach things like, you know, what's an if statement and mm-hmm. what's uh but they do it in a way that's like very game focused and very um you can tell that it's programming concepts that they're trying to get mm-hmm. across but they do it in a way that is uh yeah that, that 
like, oh, well, if you want this gate to open, you, it, it's set to where, you know, you need to bring it 15 gold, greater than 15 gold gems. You know, there's mm-hmm. some, some if condition that has to be satisfied, you know, if the number of gems you have is greater than 15, then open this gate. It's kind of stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and it kind of, it's leading up to like you design your own game out yeah. of these kind of if statements and, you mm-hmm. know, conditionals and, yeah, well, that is a conditional, but yeah, so it's, um, yeah, probably kids these days are picking it up faster. I just saw that uh, France apparently is going to make Python the official um, language for education. So, like, there's going to be, you know, in a few years, there's going to be a ton of uh, French yeah, young people who, who know know Python really well. It's uh, a friendly so language for that. So, yeah. yeah, I think that's a good idea. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that, that'll be fun. That'll be fun to watch out, watch for. How about um, before, so before here, where did you like grow up? And So I grew up on a tiny island called yeah. Mauritius, um, oh. which is, um, not many people know where it is, um, I find. Uh, so it's, so if you sort of picture the coast of Madagascar, and then you go out in the ocean for a while along the sort of 20 south latitude, yeah, so slightly less than 20 south. Okay, so we're in the Indian Ocean, right? We're and you go, you, you go, go that way. Go that way. Okay. Um for a while in the ocean and you hit a, a group of three islands oh. um, and one of them is Mauritius so I grew up there is that um, the only island that I know in terms of people living on it is this uh, Diego Garcia oh that's that, that's that's north it's north okay. so go, go go south of that Diego Garcia is close to the equator right so okay. go south okay uh, you might have heard of Rainier Island yeah. it's the French um, one and they've got an active volcano which makes them quite cool oh um, wow okay which which means that we only have dormant volcanoes and we don't have active ones, so we're kind of happy that the other, the volcano on the island next door, explodes. And, and I think the volcanoes on both islands are connected to the same magma pool. Or, really? That's what I was told when I was little. Oh, um, that's, oh, so, that's cool. so if the the one next door is the, the one next door is a big tourist attraction and it's very well controlled and it explodes regularly and mm. we, we like it because it means um, that ours are probably not going to go. Because the, I guess the pressure, the pressure's got to get out. It's going to nice go way. out on that yeah. other island over there. So it's, my, my it's parents' house um, is on the side of one of the dormant craters. Wow. It's okay. cool. Yeah, that is neat. So they're, they're still out there? They're still there? Yeah? Uh, yeah. yeah, my mother yeah. still lives there. Oh, okay. Um, do you ever go back to visit sometimes? or? Uh, kind of, I do, it's, but again, it's, with it's, a, it, it's a long flight. It's yeah. a 30-hour flight. And... Um, it's both costly and then you think about the carbon footprint. Yeah, that's true. Those two things. Yeah. So like we were saying earlier, if you want to do it, it's probably, you know, conscience-wise, probably good to do it for a longer period yeah. if you can, which is hard when you have a job and stuff and you have to, you know, do stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of do yeah. it a few years and then um, go back. Yeah. 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 That was, what, what was that like? I mean, that's a really broad kind of dumb question, but, you know, that it, it's, um, was it... I feel like I'm just going to ask dumb questions about it. I kind of, I kind of am curious <laughs> about it. Like, you know, what, but I guess usually if you ask people questions like, was it isolating? You know, I don't know what your experience was like, but most folks are like, well, I, I was a kid. We had the internet. You had the internet. <laughs> and you were a kid too, too. So like, I don't know, kids, you know, usually adapt to whatever environment they grew up yeah. in. And when you're a kid, you're like, this is fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as long as nothing horrible fine. is going on, I mean, it's fine, right? Yeah. 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 Um, I guess it's, it's very multicultural, mm-hmm. um, and it was a tropical island. So, yeah, so it's an interesting place from that point of view. So you get you get taught a lot about different cultures just because 
art school that's very mixed and um, you have many different religions around the place and many different languages spoken um, so that's one aspect that I guess would be different um, mm. to the UK yeah, um, maybe so. Although my son's school is pretty pretty diverse. I mean, that, that probably depends on where you are in the UK, I guess, right? Yeah. Some some places are going to be more diverse than others. But yeah, I think my son certainly he's got um, friends from all over, you know, all over the place, and many different religions there under the same same roof. And mm. it's got to be helpful, right? It's got to be humans. You know, we have such a tendency to like have these us versus them kind of groups and mm-hmm. to be afraid of stuff we don't understand. But then if you grow up with people from lots of different backgrounds, I don't know, maybe you get a sense of like, uh, yeah, we're just people. You're <laughs> just people. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But I guess there, were, there was also like maybe six or seven different um, language classes going on because oh, cool. each group would go on and learn a different language, which would be um, from the ethnic background, whatever was spoken. Um, yeah. So we, which meant that you could, you could go and, listen to a say Marathi lesson if you wanted to um where's that that, spoken I'm not familiar with that but uh I am going to get this wrong I'm not sure which region of India Um, okay it's a region of India yeah um but you had Tamil lessons yeah okay yeah Tamil is Sri Lanka um so you had lots of different language classes going on and you could pick what you wanted to learn so yeah normalize that idea that I'm guessing now there's variety in language and variety in like how you approach mm. your life and variety in where people people come from and like yeah that's got, that's got to be helpful. Um, I guess I got exposed a lot to the um, Hindu scriptures um, mostly because people around me had them talked about them got given books yeah read all about that. Um, Those ideas, and I, and yeah. I don't know I don't know so much about the Bible which mm-hmm. I feel people in the UK. Um, get exposed a bit more to the text in the Bible yeah. and sort of when coming here I was like well um, I, I haven't I, I've been exposed to bits of it but not much of it and a lot of there's a lot of biblical references around the place and I don't necessarily always get those that's really interesting yeah because uh, you know I mean it's the same in the US too you just kind of it's, it's, woven, it's, into it's everywhere the, it's woven into the culture yeah. um, you don't necessarily notice it but it's woven into the culture and yeah People, I mean, an example might be you talk about David and Goliath, for example, and you just use that as like... Yes, so I know oh, the biblical a... characters, but I don't know what the story behind them is. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, although I should, someone has told me what they are, but I forgot. Yeah. Um, there's a lot, right? There's, no, there's a lot like that. But yeah, that, that's really interesting to think about, like, if you're, we're, we're, if you grew up in the UK or the US, you're so used to those... And out those stories and characters, and they mm. become quick reference points if you want to say, like, oh, well, this is like... David and Goliath, you know, I don't know, a small, a small person or a team of people going up against a giant corporation or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, you would, you might use that analogy. Yeah. But um, but it's it's but if you haven't kind of grown up in that, you might not be you might not have that same kind of linguistic toolkit of like, well, I, I I'm not familiar with those stories and analogies. So like, yeah. I, I know some know. of them. It's just you get you get a lot more. References from different um, cultures, different religions. So I guess my head is filled of more of those yeah. than just the Bible. Um, yeah. What's and, uh, and I guess the, the other thing about growing up in Mauritius is um, we are, for some reason, one of the islands on the cyclone track. So the cyclones start around Diego Garcia and they sort of um, go towards Mauritius and then go towards Madagascar and at some point they sort of loop back and then go through Mauritius it always felt as a kid it always felt like they all went intersected through Mauritius for some yeah. like this tiny island and the cyclone goes through um, 
They just kept happening over and over it, again. Like, oh, in the cyclonic season, mm. it just keeps happening. And I think um, Mauritius is slightly bigger than the eye of a cyclone. So there was this period where you sort of watch out of a, you look out of a kitchen window and you see your coconut trees going one way, being blown one way. And then for a small period of time, for a few hours, they stop. They go back straight. And then they stop being blown the other oh, way well. when the cyclone's gone the other way. So you have this really mm. intense connection with like the weather and the atmosphere. That's Those really are my weather geek it's, credentials, you know, yes. Yeah, it's in your face, you know, every yeah. every season. <laughs> it's in, it's and the, right there. the radio would announce the location of the eye of the cyclone every few hours or so from mm. the Met service. And I had... in. In my household, I mean, it's probably happened in other kids' households too, you had your little synoptic chart, and then you put a little cross at the latitude and longitude of what the radio said your cyclone was at, and you drew a little line through it, and you tried to guess where the cyclone was going. <laughs> and it's cool, right? It's connected so you start to... Sorry, yeah. Yeah, you're connecting, and you're following these big cycles in the atmosphere and these big weather events, mm-hmm. and, and nerding out of them a little bit. And like, yeah, this stuff is exciting. I mean, uh, to, to connect to that experience... Um, so uh, we used to watch them quite closely in southeast Georgia where I grew mm. up because, you know, you'd get... We haven't had too many, like, direct impacts, but certainly there are a lot of, you know, hurricane impacts on the east coast mm. and, you know, some slightly north, slightly south, but we'd often get, you know, the impacts of hurricanes coming through. So we would watch them quite closely too. So, yeah, I wonder... You were, know, you, for the, were you at all scared of uh, danger associated to them? Because that was that was a big thing for us. I don't. I don't remember being. I was certainly interested. I was like interested in it. I was certainly kind of. It's, it was. I was plugged into it. I probably was scared at some point, but I don't quite remember having big fear experiences. But it. I think partly because we were inland a bit, right? Like, okay. I, and it, we, I, we might like get strong winds and lose power mm-hmm. for a few days, but the, it was nothing. You know, nothing catastrophic necessarily. Whereas, like the island, you're you know exposed and you're like. You know, in, in the, yeah. the, the, the eye wall is passing by, and the so it, intense sort winds of, are passing by. As I grew up, you realise that actually this was a dangerous situation. Yeah. And you, you get, you start being a bit more afraid of it. So we we had a concrete house, which is lucky. Um, so our house never blew down in a cyclone, but some of my friends didn't have oh, that luxury. Yeah. Um, and you think, are they okay? So and the phone lines go down, everything goes mm. down, and then mobile phones happen, which was really good because mm. you could then text your friends and say are you okay are you fleeing mm. to a shelter right. is your house being flooded that sort of thing you could check on them e- more, more easily yeah, yeah keep tabs you couldn't do anything out. because you couldn't go out but at least you know that they would be that they are okay yeah and then i imagine they have to rebuild over and over again because it, it must happen frequently it does happen know, frequently yeah. yes um, and so that it becomes really hard to get footing and get, get like to, to build anything you know lasting for yourself because nature concrete keeps, concrete you know, is generally okay, That's but right. if you have things like um, sort of corrugated um, metal sheets as your roofing, then mm. that tends to blow down. Yeah. Uh, unless you put bricks on top and sort of hold it down, um, yeah. that sort of thing. So, so our, our garage never blew off, but we had lots of breeze blocks over it to sort of hold the roof down. Mm. Um, so for and you. Things like that. And water leaking into the house, that was a common problem. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you're experiencing the nature in this very visceral way you know the impact of, mm. of nature and the atmosphere the power of the atmosphere you're experiencing it directly in this impactful way uh, regularly yeah. Can you and you s- get all the tropical diseases that come with it and oh. that's not fun oh, um, yeah. tropical diseases like from people passing through or from uh, so like- there was there was one that if you're from the tropics you might recognize it's called chikungunya and it's 
I've spoken to um, people from the Caribbean about this. They were like, yes, yes, I know this. I know people who had that. Um, I think at some point a third of the island was infected with it and Whoa. half of the island next door was also infected with it. And it's one of those mosquito-borne diseases oh, that you get. And it, um, it starts off with flu-like symptoms. And um, for some people, it's, it's like a bad flu for two weeks. For other people, it's generally just joint pain for the next six months. And there's nothing. It's six months? Whoa, okay. Yeah. My chemistry teacher had it. Um, he was out of action for six months. Wow. Oh, out, like he couldn't, couldn't even come in. He had yeah. to stop coming. It, wow. it was just oh, painful man. in bed um, for six months. Oh. I mean, it's... It sounds awful. It's quite bad. So you get some tropical diseases like that. I mean, I think I had it for two weeks and that was okay. Yeah. Um, can it be? Can you vaccinate against it at all, or is it uh, not really? It's just the mosquitoes <laughs> show up and start biting people, and yeah. I guess you'd probably need mosquito nets and things, or oh, you, you just deal with it. Just deal with it. I mean, it's like it. You give up on the whole mosquito. I mean, you can't walk around in a mosquito net all day. No. Um, no. With mosquito, you try. You have like citronella candles and all sorts of things around the place, but but you can't be no, obsessive I, I think, about it. I think we didn't. We had some strain of malaria, might be getting this wrong, but which wasn't... It certainly is that it's a malaria-prone country, but I don't think it's that bad, and I don't think I've known anyone there who mm. had malaria. Mm. So not, none of the mosquito-borne diseases whilst I was there were, were sort of, I think, going... I mean, I say that. Chikungunya did actually kill people. Um, mm. But I guess when you're there, you don't think about it so much. You don't... You're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to fall ill. It's a, uh, it's, it's a tropical country. It's what you do. You fall out. It's just like an accepted fact of life. Like, this is going to happen. It, it's scary. Trying, it, yeah. It's scary. You're like, mm. I hope I don't die out of this. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess I, pers- I don't personally know anyone who's died out of that outbreak. But I know they had... It was really bad on the island next door. Mm. And people did die. There's, there's a really good um, radio lab. Do you know that show? It's a radio show and a podcast now. Mm-hmm. And uh, where they were talking about the idea of usually when you kill, like if you kill off an entire species, you know, usually that has bad knock-on effects to the whole ecosystem. And the whole show is about like, what about mosquitoes though? Could we just like kill all mosquitoes? I sort of read you know, that, that like, like if you kill you know, the Anopheles mosquito, which is the one that's the main disease vector in the tropics, I don't. I don't think that does bad things because there's there's many other species of orca- of mosquitoes that sort of hang around and yeah. they are fine. Yeah, I'm not going to try to remember the conclusion of the show exactly, but that that was part of the logic they were following for a while. Mm. Is like if there is a species that you could just wipe out and it actually would be good overall. Yeah, <laughs> mosquitoes. Mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah, I think mosquitoes. I'm not so sure about rats, but mm. if you could wipe out some of the rats, that might be helpful. Might be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, plague, plague carriers, yeah. Um, so, what can you see a through line for you between you know the, experiencing the hurricanes and did that couple with you know when when did you start kind of getting interested in science and when did you start thinking about that you might head off head in that direction in the science direction or I think I was always interested in the sciences yeah. since I was very little. Um, the health and safety is taken less seriously in Mauritius, <laughs> at least when I was growing up. Hmm. Um, yeah, like mosquito, we're going to get sick. Just don't worry about it. <laughs> not too much of that, but I mean, I had a mini chemistry lab in my living room. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was kind of easier to get access to things. Things that might like, blow up or things that might blow catch up on fire. Really not good for you. Um, 
sort of on a smaller scale, you could ask for like a small amount of indicator material and just you get given in a tiny vial and you put that there and you'd be yeah. like, right, I'm going to do a titration and I've got my chemicals that I need to do this. I'll yeah. just do it. Yeah. There wasn't as much oversight, right? There wasn't as, there weren't, there, nobody was checking, you know. You just, yeah. Yeah. In hindsight, I should have had some data sheets on toxicity of some of those things that I was playing with. Um, the stuff you shouldn't breathe, for example. You should, and, you know. you should yeah. yeah. You should try not to eat it. Um, I've never eaten any of the things that I was playing with, so that was good. Um, yeah, good. I survived. So <laughs> I'm not saying... Yeah, I think there should have been a bit more awareness on that level. Um, but it did mean that I had a lot of science kits and things around the place yeah um, freedom to explore yeah. yeah freedom to try to combine different chemicals and yeah and see what, <laughs> happens. see what happens but generally i knew what happened uh, so you know i had books and all of that and i was mm. and i had the internet so you, you could you could do sensible things um and, you get suggestions yeah yeah and i also had some lots of physics toys around the place um oh, nice. i remember two giant um, pendulums that were hanging in the hallway. The hallway was not really usable, um, mostly because I was always swinging the pendulums. So if you're coming out of a room, you had to check that the pendulum wasn't swinging before coming out of this room. Um, Otherwise you'll get clacked by this thing. This thing, yeah. yeah. Like, there were two of them that were swinging, and at some point I coupled them together and they were both swinging oh, nice. um, in the hallway. They were not very big balls. They were about you know two centimetres diameter steel balls, but steel. They, were, they, were, they, were, they would be painful if that hit yeah. you. You, didn't, you wouldn't want to get hit in the eye with them, for example, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you want to avoid that. So you, get, you had them coupled up to each other? You had them yeah, like, I had them tied to each other and sort of oscillating nice. together and resonating and that sort of thing. Um, that's cool. So was that your, your folks were getting you that, that stuff, ena- enabling you? you know, through yeah, they were, they were fine stuff. with it. So, yes. Oh, cool. Um, and I think the worst thing that we've ever did, uh, we did that outside, thankfully, Um is to siphon off some battery acid. Do not do this, people. Um, don't do this at home. Um, siphon off some battery acid, get some cigarette papers that have aluminium in them, stick that into a bottle, um, stick that into the battery acid, and it produces hydrogen gas, and get a balloon. Whoa. <laughs> and make a hydrogen balloon. <laughs> do not do this at home. No, you can you can isolate hydrogen like from the water. You can, you can break hydrogen... Uh, you can break H2O apart into hydrogen yeah. and oxygen without battery acid, right? You can. There's yeah, a there's yeah, a way yeah. to do it where you pass some current through the water, right? You can find some battery acid from like the petrol station, <laughs> just to top up the battery yeah. in your car. So you could just again easy access to chemicals. Um, just around, yeah. Just around. You go to the shop. You want a liter of battery acid? That's awesome. Well, Pay glad, some money. You get some battery acid. I'm glad you survived that. <laughs> <laughs> Those years of early experimentation and throwing different chemicals together. Cool. But you had a so you had this this uh, not only a visceral kind of experience of nature and the cyclones and things, but you also had a lot of cool science toys and the freedom to explore mm. that. And and uh, I think that's the best thing you can do, right? If you notice your kids curious about stuff, just keep enabling them. Keep throwing like, well, here, play with this, play with that. I mean, okay, I understand your point about there, you need to have some safety concerns, you know, you in do. there somewhere. Yeah, you may want to get but, the science stuff from a science kit that's approved and sold in a shop rather than buying random things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that uh, so you were able to kind of pursue that and, and study that a bit in school, and then and you came over here at some point. Yeah. What, what was that transition like? Had you been over to the UK before, or had you visited? Uh, I'd much visited. Before? A, I'd visited twice. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it was fine. I mean, I guess because we get exposed to a lot of the culture through the BBC World Service, mm-hmm. 
it was and Mauritius was a former British colony and also a former French colony so it's um, it, it felt fine I didn't experience much of a culture shock coming yeah. to here I actually had more of a culture shock the first time I went to the US from the UK mm. than I had coming here yeah um, it is different yeah yes <laughs> yeah. I mean and, and I went to California on top of that for the first time and it was just like whoa everything <laughs> is sweet and whoa you can't buy milk in sensible sizes and everything is large <laughs> I <definitely laughs> and I can't put finish that a meal um, you take it home that's what you do you, you get yeah you take it you get a box take it home put it in the fridge and then you have it for another meal so when you go out to eat you're really buying at least two meals sometimes more. right yeah, yeah but then when you're right. presented with a burrito that's sort of larger than your plate and you know longer than your arm and you think what get a box and, and the cheesecake is like 30 centimeters tall and you're like people you can't eat that no no there's more calories sitting. than I'm allowed for the day not in one sitting no it's I think I think maybe what happened in the US is there was a bit of a, an arms race of like um, people got you know, restaurants the, the worst thing that could happen to a restaurant is to have in the US anyway is to have your customers leaving going oh I'm still hungry so there was sort of an arms race of like oh right okay you know Oh, we're going to make sure nobody leaves here still hungry mm. because that's a, that's like I think a it really, feels, you know, it's gone a bit too far. Sure, um, yeah. <laughs> of so. <course> it has. <laughs> no, but the, you know, but the practical solution to that is, yeah, you get a box and you take it home and you, you eat, eat multiple enough. meals out of it, and that's. <laughs> but then you know, com- coming here to the UK, it was, it was, everything looked sensible and everything was okay yeah it was in a configuration you were roughly familiar with culturally yeah. you were familiar with the you know how things yes. were set up and like yeah and, and coming back to this food thing in the u.s yeah. so yeah. i got taken to this place and had chicken waffles right um, yeah. because some american people decided that that was a thing <laughs> that i should have before leaving um yeah. and it was bread and chicken that was fine and then there was waffles and maple syrup and on top of that there was like this blob that looked like a scoop of ice cream, and I thought, "What is that?" Is it whipped, whipped topping, was it? No, it was a whole blob of butter that was gently a blob of butter. butter that was gently melting over the whole thing, Ooh, like yeah. the size of an ice cream bowl. Um, oh, the size of an ice cream bowl, really? Yep. Okay, that sounds intense. I hadn't seen that particular configuration of chicken waffles, and it was like it was you know completely covered in maple syrup on top of that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever go to a Waffle House? Waffle House is famous for you know you get a giant waffle. And just completely slathered with butter mm. and maple syrup, and it's it's a, it's a real artery killer. But you know, it's a well, if you've had a late night and maybe you've had some some pints and stuff, it can be a really comforting like thing thing to I eat. Think, you know, I think we had a Cambridge Waffle House here when I was an undergraduate, so yeah. that was quite nice. But you had lots of toppings on it, mm. so it wasn't just you know giant waffle with maple syrup. It was mm. giant waffle with fruit and other things. Yeah, you so you could at least savory waffles. pretend you were being healthy. Exactly. Because, like, at least mentally, like, I'm eating fruit. It's right here. Yeah. <laughs> it's on top of the waffle. Um, I, I liked when you said, oh, you can't get milk in sensible sizes in the U.S. Cause I, that I did was, try uh, to buy some milk. I, I like a good cup of tea. And yeah. um, I think the smallest size of milk I found was a gallon of milk. And I thought, what am I going to do with a gallon of milk? <laughs> you should be able to find half gallons. Half gallons exist <laughs> over there. Yeah. But that, that was one thing coming from the U.S. to here. I loved the little the little milks, the smallest little containers of milk that you can get. They're so cute. They're <laughs> just adorable. They are quite cute. But yeah. I mean, sort of four <laughs> pints of milk to me is a sensible amount of mm. milk. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, no, the, 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 if you just need some for your tea, right, the little cute ones, that's perfect. If you mm. just need a splash every now and then, 
And a kettle. No, you can't get kettles in the US. No, I've It's a very addi- difficult thing. I've gotten addicted to the kettle. I like having yeah. the electric kettle. It's so useful. Yeah. yeah. Just being able to flip a switch and get hot water, you know, 30 seconds later. Because um, there's a, you know, I, I remember, I mean, in the, in the States, you just get like a kettle for your for your stove top, right? And you put the mm. kettle on, and but it takes a long time. You got to wait a while, so it's it, not it very does. efficient, you know. But the, the, the idea of having a kettle is quite nice. Yeah. yeah, I don't remember how did I cope without an electric kettle. I don't remember. <laughs> like I don't know how that how that worked. There, and the you can get special iced tea makers, you know, in the in the states. Okay, probably here too, but they're just not not very common. Um, that. They're sort of like an electric kettle because mm-hmm. you put the water in and it brews the tea for you. But yeah. you brew it in like a big gallon size or like a half gallon size. So you get like a giant pitcher of tea that you can mm-hmm. then stick in the fridge and have as your you know gallon of iced tea. <laughs> Which um, I miss iced tea a little bit. I miss being able to get it everywhere because like in the yeah, states you can, you can order, it, you can make it, but here you can't just go out and be like, I want a glass of iced unsweetened tea, and it's just it's not really an option in most places. So. You know, I yeah. guess you could ask for some tea and then put ice in it, but that's weird. Mm. That's, that's not the same thing. You know, and then your ice would just melt, and then it's watered down. Um, but that, that's one of the yeah. You, you can make it at home, right? And that's that's fine. Yeah. But, yeah. I, I miss being able to just go out and get it. So um, I usually like to end with a, a little kind of set of questions for your kind of relatively quick reactions. You know, like rep, rapid fire round. It doesn't have to be super fast. Um, okay. But. Um, I'd like to hear about some of the things you've learned in different aspects. Like, um, like well, we don't have to stop necessarily, you know, if you wanted to keep talking about, you know, whatever else came up. But I was just noticing that it's kind of close to lunchtime mm-hmm. and probably we'll want to eat, <laughs> you know, sometime yeah. in the near future, right? Um, are you in the 12 crowd or the 12.30 crowd for lunch? You know, I bring so my own lunch. You bring your own lunch. Yeah. And then you just eat whenever you want, yeah. basically. So you're not tied to the cycle of when people go go to lunch. No, right? not there's, really. There's, there's a whole, like... Uh, uh, I'm in the sort of beat the kids of the microwave crowd. Oh, yeah. How are you liking the microwave? That's new, the microwaves. Or have you been using the... I've, uh, well, I've been using the new microwaves in the center. It's nice yeah. to have, I mean... Um, yeah, it's very practical. I think most folks listening won't understand how excited, why we're so excited about microwaves. Like, but for the longest time, you know, you kind of couldn't. It was sort of they're sort of hidden. Like, you, you could sort of sneak, there was a sign on there was a sign on it saying you shouldn't use the microwave. Yeah. So you felt a bit like you were breaking the rules yeah. by using the microwave. You could. You but could, you but you were felt, breaking the rules. Yeah, you so now like we're actually allowed to use the microwave. You're actually literally allowed to use them. Yeah, I don't I don't really know the full story behind why we couldn't use microwaves in the building for a long time, but now we can and it feels like a even though I haven't used them, it feels like a whole new era has opened up. Like <laughs> this is amazing. The freedom. Um, which is it's such a small thing, but it's made a big difference. So, yeah, I just like to ask, like, what what you've learned about different things. Like, so I like to ask, what's something you've learned about about research, about like working in in research life? And it can be anything. It can be any kind of short. You know, it doesn't have to be short. You can talk for as long as you want. Any kind of reaction you have to that, like, some some takeaway, something you've, um, you know, how you navigate that research life, or how you respond to it, or how you react to it. I think I used to, when I sold my PhD, I used to get very stressed about not being able to solve a problem. Um, so you'd have this problem and you'd sit down and, on Monday at your desk and you'd think, oh, this is not working, nothing is working. How am I going to solve this? And you get you get very involved in it and you get very upset that you can't solve it. Um, and throughout the years, I realized that actually it's fine 
it will be solved. It's just a matter of time and you have to keep going at it. Yeah. So I think of it as like, you know, there's a brick wall at some point. I'm going to hit this brick wall, but I'm going to go over it. Hmm. So then I get less stressed about it when things don't work because yeah. I know that maybe next week it will work or the week after it will work, but I just need to keep at it. Um, yeah. So it sounds like you get a better sense of the, the time scale on which, you know, some research problems are solved. That I, you, no, you know, I believe yeah. that it's, that things are solvable and you can get answers. It will just take some time. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed and you to, don't have to worry about, you sort of, when I was a PhD student, I just thought, oh goodness, this problem is not tractable. It's impossible to do this. Mm. Um, and I don't know when I'm going to be done with it. Yeah. And I think I've changed my perspective to this problem is now solvable. Hmm. It's just hard. Thanks. And I don't yeah. know how long it'll take. Yes. It's like the standard model, figuring out how the universe works. It's a very hard problem. <laughs> yeah. But I think it'll happen at some point. It'll happen. Yeah. And people are making progress and chipping away at it. Yeah, for sure. So the walls don't freak you out anymore. The, yeah. the barriers don't freak you out anymore. You, yeah. yeah. You, you, you. Except that there are barriers. Mm. And... I'll be able to jump some of them, yeah. but I might not be able to jump all of them. That sounds really healthy. <laughs> That's good. Well, something you've learned about like uh, academia, kind of, and that could be broader than just research. That could just be, you know, how how you have uh, carved your way through this ac- weird academic world that we find ourselves in. Um, I guess that it's not for everyone, and that you have. That this is mostly from looking at friends who started PhDs, who dropped out of PhDs, or. Um, who've um, started PhDs, finished them and gone to different career paths and still been, yeah. you know, it's, they have all been very successful in their respective careers, but they might, I guess there's a sort of, there's a tendency at the end of your undergraduate to naturally go into um, a PhD. Mm. Um, the momentum there. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Just because it, it feels similar, you're going to a university environment, you prolong being a student, you're sort of, you're mm. a student for slightly longer. Um, and I guess you have to really think about it at that point, stop and think at, during your undergraduate years whether you want to do research and even during your PhD, think very carefully whether at the end you want to do postdoctoral research. Um, and you should naturally just go into it because that, that is the next thing that everyone around you seems to be doing hmm. um, yeah there are other pathways that are non-academic that are which are which totally can also legit. involve research and not hmm. necessarily be within a research institution um, or there are non-academic pathways out there that you might enjoy better than yeah. academia that's true um, we might be picking that up on the microphones sometimes noises like that show up on the mics and sometimes not but uh I don't know. Sounds like something yard work related. Uh, Maintenance. Chopping up some yeah. plants or something. You know, some, that's a weird way to say cutting the grass. I'm going to go chop up some plants, some parts <laughs> of plants. I'm going to go slice them. Um, yeah, how about how about writing? What's something you learned about writing? Is that a process you enjoy or is it, I mean, is it I, more I of a... it's a very difficult process. Difficult, yeah, yeah, I think... Um, I like seeing the end result, but mm. it takes a very long time to get there. And um, summarizing information is very hard. And there's a tendency, yeah. because you've done something, to say everything you want to know about it so that it can be entirely reproducible um, mm. and you want to tell the world about every single step that you've done. So I think my solution to that is I write a lot of appendices. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Is, so I have the main paper with the big picture and all the main points, and then there is C Appendix A, 
for the details of how I've done this, see Appendix B for the statistical yeah. methods, see Appendix C mm-hmm. if you want more details on the method and the implementation. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and these days, no, that makes sense because then your main paper you can still have a clear like narrative through it mm. without a huge detour into you know some obscure statistical something yep. that is important. But then for the folks who need you know, to want to, to know, know that, what to do, they yes. can hop to the appendix. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so I've, I've, I've just ended up writing a lot of large appendices. Yeah. You're, um, the, the way you put it reminded me, I can't remember who said it, but I think I saw this on Twitter, that um, they said, uh, writing is horrible. Having written something is really nice. So like, when it's in the past tense and you have done it, that yeah. feels really good. That's like a, you know, you've accomplished something and it can feel very, very satisfying. But yeah, sometimes when you're in the process, it can be really a, a drag. Um, and some people love it. I mean, I've talked to lots of scientists on here and there's a, a full spectrum of, you know, people who love writing and that's their favorite thing. And people who, you know, it's, it's um, more of a drag and more of the, mm. you know, their, their least favorite part of the job. So I guess, you know, that just, it just illustrates that like, yeah, science has that diversity of of writing. Like, you don't have to love writing necessarily to do science. You know, it it can help you, but you don't have to. I like it know. when I've got a good story to tell. Mm, yeah, but it takes time to build that story and to be confident about everything you say in it. Yeah, for sure. And it it can be one of those barriers too, can't it? it, it, it not a research problem barrier, but a like a how do I package this appropriately mm. kind of barrier. And like you said, that that's something you can solve as well. It just takes time, and you have to be patient with it and let it let it happen, which can be hard in a world where scientists are like evaluated based on yes. how, how much they're publishing and how frequently they're publishing, mm. and um, that that that's the other pressure on that. Whereas these, you know, putting together a clear scientific narrative takes takes time, and you can't yeah. really you can't really rush it. Sometimes you have to just let it um, let it. So, so the, the the sort of metric I was given for. Um, getting tenure at a place is averaging three papers a year or something but and I thought goodness okay <laughs> but for the not first author though right I mean three like papers that you're on or involved with in some way because I think but as a, think, as a substantial author yeah if, if you're if you're going with tenure yeah. but I think um that's more in the U.S. though, right? Like a tenure system. The tenure yeah. thing doesn't exist everywhere, but you know, in some places you get a job, no, and it's but it's a bit more like uh, yeah. stable. Yeah. Yeah. But the, uh, but I think what happens is as folks become more senior and they grow their networks, then you know they you're on multiple that, papers. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's how that's how senior scientists get these insane publication lists where there's just like, I was on 15 papers mm. last year. It's like well. They probably weren't super involved with all of them, right? Yeah. There maybe was one or two they were heavily involved with, but you know, the, most of them, you just as a senior person, you end up on papers because you contributed an idea or you mm-hmm. did this, or you, you helped with the funding or you did that. I like how these days on a, when you submit to like Journal of Geophysical Research, when you add an author, you can also add how did they contribute. And there's yeah, this I like the contribution section because it says what people have done and it gives gives you an idea of who say contributed to the code and who um helped with the interpretation of the results and different aspects of what people did yeah that's right um and you, you it lets you give credit to folks who um even if they haven't maybe played a huge role in the the, the digging into the weeds of the research paper mm. itself if they really helped you with 
you know, the big a big overall concept, or even if they just helped kind of craft the project within which you're working, you can give credit to them mm-hmm. in an appropriate way that's good for them, and and that because it is explicitly tied to, um, you know, in that submission system. No, this person just helped with the like they're they're a group manager and a group leader. You can make it clear what their role was. Mm-hmm. That's all I mean. You can make it clear what their role you know was. Um, so yeah, I think that's a that's a nice thing they've done. That's a nice addition. Oh, that sound's not going away. That sound is just going to be there. <laughs> Can you edit it out? Uh, maybe. Probably Probably a more uh, sophisticated producer could do it. I do very little production, quote-unquote. I just, like, I've learned how to push some buttons that have to do with compressing things, and then okay. that's about it. <laughs> you know, like, compress. Okay, <laughs> that's good. Um how about presenting your work or like what's something you've learned about presenting, you know, giving presentations or interviews and things? Um, Is that something you enjoy doing or? I do, yeah. but I, I, there are a number of people in the field who are very good at it and yeah. I admire them for the way they present mm. their, thing, their research. Um, I think don't try to say too much in a presentation. Um, yes. In a 15-minute in a presentation, one idea is yeah. how much you'll have. I mean, yeah, I know you want to say lots. Um, and, again, I use that technique of having 10 more slides for follow-up questions. Yeah. Um, but stick to one idea in 15 minutes. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And um, some advice I got given a while ago was, like, well, mostly just tell people what they already know. And then add your little pebble and add your little bit on top of yeah. that. Like you said, and just one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, some, some introductory slides that your audience probably will be comfortable with and feel like, oh, yeah, I know that. I get that. Yeah. And then once they feel comfortable, you can like, and here's my little contribution mm. that I want to add. And then walk away. <laughs> and spend time on plots. Yeah. So people have the tendency to put up a plot. And because they've seen it a lot they know what's in that plot but if you've never seen it before you have no idea what the axes are what the yeah. diagram is showing what the contours are or what, what's even being plotted there yeah right so I spend a lot of time um, just explaining I'm plotting a plot of latitude versus height and you're seeing those lines and the colours mean this mm-hmm. and the labelling mean that and I'm using this data and reiterating what you've done yeah um, and sure. that can take a while um, mm-hmm. but it means that if you walk your audience through it they will actually pay attention to what you're showing yeah for sure yeah, I think that's really good. I try to do the same thing as well because it, you know it happens way too often where I'm watching somebody's talk, trying to listen, and they're going on and on about the implications of the plot they're showing, and I'm still going, "What's the what's the vertical axis? What is this quantity? What are the units on this thing? What do I, I don't what am I looking at? Why are there so many lines? You know, I'm still stuck on like, yeah. what is what are you trying to show me? Mm-hmm. And they're they're rambling on about you know. The, the implications and uncertainties and the next like ah, yeah, I don't know um, so I think that's yeah I think that's really good advice um, and that sound is getting louder and they're getting closer I don't know if it's you know well we'll see if it gets picked up or not on this thing it's alright it'll be fine either way I'm not too worried um, so the uh, yeah although I did lose my train of thought a little bit <laughs> it's so loud um I like to end with like this pair of questions where um, it's like something that you maybe don't love about your job or something that's frustrating about your job. And I'm going to see what that is. Um, 
So LinkedIn is like, what's something that you don't love about your job? It's a large metal pole that keeps waving, being waved in front of the window. Yeah. Is it? Are they cleaning the gutter? They're cleaning the gutters. Yeah, that's what's going on. So it must be they're uh, vacuuming leaves out of the gutters. Is what that sound is. So okay. That, that metal screen thing is the the vacuum itself being dragged around. And uh, sorry, what was your question? That, I got distracted. Yeah, no, I, I am too. So what's um? It's this pair of questions. Like, what's something you don't love about your job, or maybe hate about it, or just don't don't feel that great about? And then what's something that you do love about about your job? Kind of a you know a pair of like okay. that love and hate kind of experience and or it doesn't have to be hate it could just be you know, I think the, the thing that frustrates me is that we are a very connected world and you can keep in touch with people without having to travel and there's this idea that I guess if you so I've been in Cambridge for a very long time and that's very hard to do um, and if you're living here and you're settled somewhere then to progress your career in academia you need it's expected that you will move around and yeah, bounce yeah, around yeah. every few years between institutions. Mm. And it gets exhausting. Um, yeah. It means you have to uproot your life every one or two years, and postdocs are getting shorter and shorter. Yeah. So every one or two years, you need to uproot your life, move country, um, ship your entire uh, belongings across the Atlantic, and then ship them back again because this is where the job is and this is where you have to go. Yeah, somehow, um, and with no money. You and know, with no doing money. That somehow with no money. Yeah. Um, and I would like there to be a shift where it's more acceptable to stay in the same place and still do good research because I think that's possible. Yeah, for sure. I have collaborators all over the world um, and I think I do a good job of keeping in touch with them Yeah. without having to uproot my life and go there. So that's, that's right. That's, that's one thing that annoys me. That's a really good point. I was talking with uh, Bianca Perrin about mm. that and um, so, you know, Bianca once heard the criticism, you know, it was... Uh, I think this criticism they were responding to you know what you and I are saying like it's so exhausting having to move around so much and apparently this criticism I don't know I don't know where it came from but it's it's uh I'd have to ask her again and it's uh yeah sorry that's really distracting isn't it? um so the criticism was like oh well you should just treat your work like you're an artist you know going from task to task and like you just said, well, that that might be fine if I'm allowed to physically stay in the same place. Because typically, like, I mean, I don't want to overgeneralize, but if you're uh, an artist or a musician, you might be able to, like, move to, to Los Angeles or move to London and pretty much stay there and try to carve out your career there. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't necessarily have to completely move to a different country every couple of years to keep yeah. your career going. So, yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like, because we can work remotely and, you know, live remotely and, and do a good job at that, and you can you then, can travel yeah. to see people and to talk to them, but you don't need to be always there. Yeah, I guess that's right. And so you don't necessarily have to physically be in the same place, you know, to work. But there for is an there is that view that you need to be physically there and interacting with the people. I mean, there are benefits to that, but I feel you should still be able to have a career without having to do that. Yeah, that's right. Well. Um, Shall we get out of here before the scraping gets too much louder? And I was going to say, the thing I love about <laughs> my know. job is it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, it's important you should say what you love about it. <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, it's interesting, and it's it's going on around in the world around me, and that's nice to be able to do something. It's relevant. Is, yeah, I can, I can point at the stratosphere, and I know it's there. Yeah. And occasionally I fly, fly through it on an international flight. Yes. So I know it exists. It's cool. Yeah, you can... You can 
it's you can you know where it is you can be in it yeah in a plane you can fly mm-hmm. through the stratosphere i remember um out at colorado state um when i was a grad student out there we had a day where they let us uh, launch radio sound balloons mm-hmm. as part of a class we launched the radio sound and then we went we all went back inside into the classroom mm-hmm. and we watched the temperature you know as this balloon excuse me went up higher and higher in the atmosphere um it was on a big projector you know we had the we had the temperature reading on the big you know screen on the big projector on the, in the lecture hall and it was really fun to watch the temperature go down and down and down as the weather balloon you know went up into the throughout the troposphere and then it hit the stratosphere and the temperature started going back up again and it was super cool it was so exciting yeah. to see it i'm like there it is there's literally the stratosphere the temperature's going uh-huh. back up again um and it and, exists and, and it's there yeah. it's it yeah, it exists. It's there. You can see it, um, and it, it, I really like that sense of. I'm, I'm just saying this to relate to what you were saying. Like, I really like that sense of. Yeah, it's a real tangible thing that mm-hmm. I'm working on, and it, and it has a huge scale too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 it impacts our lives, and it impacts um, you know the way we kind of plan and think about what we're doing right now and our futures. And yeah, it's 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 huge. Um, yeah, good. Is there anything else you want to talk about? How are you feeling? Yeah, no, um, distracted right. by the metal pole that's Super going on. distracted, yeah. Outside. I, um, I thought about maybe asking them to uh, maybe not do that, but, you know, they're, they're just doing their job. Yeah. I they're think, just doing I their job. I think they'll move on. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much. That was Thank great. You. That was really, a really good conversation. Thank you for coming along. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. There you have it. My conversation with Dr. Allison Ming. You can follow Dr. Ming on Twitter, at Allison Ming. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean, also on Twitter. Um, and you can also find Dr. Ming's profile on the British Antarctic Survey website. You can look that up. That's there, uh, where you'll find links to the ISOL ICE project. Uh, one site I wanted to mention um, is earth.nullschool.net. So this site is really interesting because... It has really great visualizations of the winds on uh, on the planet. And uh, so what you can do, go to earth.nullschool.net, and you can, by clicking on the word earth, you can control the height that you're looking at. If you look at the height and look at the 10 hectopascal level, that's 10 HPA, then you're kind of in the stratosphere. Uh, and you'll be able to see the polar vortex you'll be able to see if there is a sudden stratospheric warming and if there is a uh, change in the polar vortex you'll be able to see it there but you know follow dr ming for updates on what's going on with the stratosphere thanks for listening thanks for tuning in downloading streaming however you are listening to this thanks for your support thank you for uh, ranking the podcast on itunes and leaving reviews that's really helpful and i do read them so uh take care we'll uh, talk to you next time Yep, bye now.